Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the many fine sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the work of a single director, their critical hits, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey, a journey that in this episode takes us through the works of what may be the greatest American independent filmmaker in history, John Sayles. Welcome, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And I also am really happy to be talking John Sayles with you and... That just maybe a uh, special secret guest is going to be joining us a few times throughout the broadcast. Mm -hmm. Let's keep your ears open for uh, some very special insights from a special visitor. So you've made the salient point about sales as representative of the indie movement of the 80s that really peaked in the 90s. He really paved the way for directors like uh, Jim Jarmusch and even later on folks like, uh, like Kevin Smith or Richard Linkletter. But, of course, there are indies who preceded Mr. Sales as well. Probably the most notable being John Cassavetes, who was one of the, the first truly independent directors to make a name for himself in Hollywood. Uh, people like David Lynch, who started with low-budget movies like Eraserhead before moving on to larger projects. But Sales, having this background in writing, seems to have figured out uh, what's plagued a lot of other indie directors in how to keep their vision sustainable over a long career of great films while still working with Hollywood, but also being apart from Hollywood. I consider sales nothing less than the very model, the ultra example of how you can maintain your creative independence and use that independence to have such a wonderful questing spirit of looking through the stories you want to tell across different cultures, different countries, different genres, different styles. There's always a sense when you get to a new sales film that you will be looking in a window at a different part of the world or a different part of society you're going to get a freshness and a uniqueness in in what you are about to see. He, he's a true artist. He works throughout many mediums. He started as an author uh, writing books before e- even submitting his first screenplay. His uh, first book published was called Pride of the Bimbos in 1975, which he <laughs> followed with, with Union Dues. And even enough short stories to make a compilation called The Anarchist Convention. I saw an interview with him where he was asked, well, what would you do if a studio said to you, we'll make your film, we'll give you a huge, huge budget, but but we want Final Cut. We don't want you to have Final Cut. And basically he said he just wouldn't make the film. 
because he doesn't really need to. He's a storyteller. And because he first made his name as a great writer before a great director, he has this psychological independence from Hollywood. That's a nice way of putting it. When you know that what you write has a certain quality to it and a value that you want to hold on to that value and do what you need to so that value is represented. There are several films of Sales's that were had been written, but it took years for him to acquire their amount of money and uh, other production assets and casting so to get the movies eventually made. But he knew that what he had at heart, the foundation, had been laid and it could hold and it would keep for when the movie did get an opportunity to get finished. Like so many great directors, John Sayles started in the Roger Corman school of filmmaking, (laughs) writing scripts for B-monster movies. Uh, His first one was uh, the 1978 film Piranha, which has what still might be one of Sayles' greatest lines, which is a character saying... The piranhas. They're eating the guests, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Piranhas seem to be a great launching point in the Corman universe, since I believe the director of Piranha 2 was one James Cameron. Indeed. (laughs) He followed that with the script for Alligator, a 1980 film uh, that I actually saw when I was a kid uh, about what happens if you flush a small alligator uh, down the toilet, that it... (laughs) may come out exactly where you don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what happened on New York. Okay. He he wrote the script for the uh, science fiction version of Seven Samurai, Battle Beyond the Stars, and the werewolf classic The Howling, both Piranha and The Howling, directed by Joe Dante. And this is a script that never saw the light of day, but... It was quite the prestigious gig. He was uh, working on a script for Steven Spielberg called Night Skies at the time, which was kind of viewed as a uh, sequel of sorts to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But in fact, after his script was replaced by other scripts, the concept eventually became E.T., the extraterrestrial. And so these are our general impressions on sales. And we uh, were going to have as guests the founder of the Now Play Network and the original host, the OH of the Directors Club, Jim Lechkowski. Uh, Jim, unfortunately, wasn't able to make it to participate with our discussion, but he was so taken by sales that he wanted to go and pass his thoughts along. So Without further ado, here's Jim. Hello, Brad and Al over at Directors Club. Sorry I couldn't be there in person. As you know, a lot is going on as of late. But uh, I did want to contribute some brief thoughts because uh, there's a reason why I wanted to be on the episode, and that's because I've become quite the fan of this filmmaker. Uh, you know, it's funny. Recently, I, ju- I just saw Carl Franklin at the Music Box Theater, and he said... The thing about a novel is that the conflict is within the character's mind, and in cinema, conflict is best represented between characters, 
because, you know, it's... Otherwise, if we just get the internal conflict, it's nothing but voiceover narration or whatever. But I, I actually thought of sales when Carl Franklin mentioned that, because often his films feel like intricate novels in scope and scale. Uh, he, he reminds me of someone who has the same kind of character detail that Sam Shepard does with his writing. And he's also able to juggle multiple characters and storylines like Altman could. Uh, but most importantly, I think he covers the racial tension within a variety of minorities um, in very unexpected ways. He humanizes every character to be um, n- never to be fl- like always to be flawed and never to be um, put on a pedestal or heroic. It's just he knows how to write human beings in a way that feels refreshing and invigorating. He's just one of those class acts who can kind of get all the elements pitch perfect at times. Someone who taught a film class to me once once mentioned that film is kind of about curiosity. If you're not curious about the characters and where they're going, then why bother investing time or empathy or energy? Because watching a movie does take energy. There are times where I feel drained or there's times where I feel uh, enlightened or invigorated, and I think sales can ca- capture all of those feelings. I mean, there are times when he gets a little ambitious and messy early in his career. I don't think he's completely successful with something like The Brother from Another Planet. Uh, but, I, I mean, he's also responsible for bringing Chris Cooper and Joe Morton and David Strathairn to modern-name cinema, and those are some those are some quality actors right there. He knows how to use them all very well. I think he has a lot of respect for the storytelling process that makes me excited to watch his work. I, I still there's still so much to catch up with. Uh, he makes me want to write more. And as a director, he's able to stage character tension in a way that is precise and yet not showy. As beautifully evidenced in Lone Star uh, early on in a flashback between Charlie and Buddy. More on that in a moment, but those are just some of my initial thoughts on sales. Uh, have a great recording. I'll be back for when you discuss Lone Star. Thanks for that, Jim. And Jim, we look forward to seeing you, sneak preview folks, for our Francis Ford Coppola podcast in the near future. Yeah, be on the lookout for, quote unquote, the conversation. <laughs> but first, we're going to converse about John Sayles' first movie as a director. In all the time I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. The weekend at the college didn't turn out like you planned. The things that pass for knowledge I can't understand. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? Return of the Secaucus 7, released in 1980 takes place over a weekend as seven friends approaching their 30s reunite for the first time in years. Some are couples, others recently broken up, and still others bring new partners into this tight-knit group. But all share a common bond from their past and are struggling with what it means to be an adult. Now, I have to confess... I haven't seen the previous six movies, so I don't know how well. <laughs> but uh, joking, joking aside, I kind of, kind of fascinating how 
it's called The Return of the Sakaka 7, and it sort of has a sequel kind of title. And it's so fascinating to me how in the first movie that Sales decides to do as a director, he's already looking back. Mm-hmm. That that's the direction he chose for as the a topic. Right, and that, that title makes us think of some other things like The Magnificent Seven or what was going on 10 years earlier, the, the Chicago 8. But I first heard of this film as a, in contrast to another more well-known film, it was in reviews of The Big Chill. It, we were pointed out that this was the film The Big Chill was kind of loosely based on with the big difference that it didn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> right. I share your disdain with the big with Lawrence Kasdan's movie. I probably have an even more intense dislike with the film and the characters within it. And I think the difference between those is that Lawrence Kasdan's career at the time was trying to do a level of self-awareness in the kind of stories that he was doing he was he had a bit of a break by making silverado which was kind of a self-aware western and body heat which is a bit of a self-aware kind of noir they're films that know that they're films but when you focus it to these idea of these rich famous entitled clever people spending two hours with them backslapping each other over how rich and how entitled they are, it becomes massively insufferable. And it wants to be this nostalgia fest of everyone sitting around talking about how great it was in the 60s. And I think where it falters is what Sikaka 7 really gets right, because it doesn't just tell us through dialogue what things were like. It gives us such depth of characters and characters with history that when they do reference the 60s, it could be kind of as asides and things that we can infer more about than just outright telling us this was the greatest time to be alive. Right. The characters in Sakaka 7 all have had different effects from the events that had befallen them when they were younger and in their college years and working on different um, communes and other social projects. It's not treating the 60s like some big trophy that they take turns awarding to themselves. But some people, they follow those ideals. Some in Sikaka 7, I mean. For some characters, they work now work for a center, and they are torn about it in different ways because this is some this is somebody who they would much rather be have been protesting <laughs> uh, years earlier. Um, some have tried to continue um, work uh, social work as uh, as teachers. Some as teachers, one wants to continue to do uh, to do good as a doctor, but all of them have a different attitude about what their younger selves were. And in addition to having su each one have such a robust attitude of what the, what that era meant to them and what, what their feel that their lives are going to now, then you mix them all together. 
and you start by having the teacher couple, but then as more and more people with other daring attitudes, it becomes this pretty nicely presented tapestry of a kaleidoscope of different attitudes about the subject. Right away, we're dealing with excellent writing because it's so much richer to provide us characters who not only have complicated relationships with each other, but also with their own past and what it means to sell out or what it means to just grow up and move on and how somebody in their late 20s is different from somebody in in their late teens. Or not, as some people, as Mm -hmm. one of the characters tries to pursue his uh, recording career, despite the fact that even he may be thinking, it might be a little too late for trying this stuff. (laughs) Right. So this this film was made on a micro-budget, and Sales basically utilized the house that him and his theater friends were staying in as the setting. The cast was basically uh, Sales' uh, friends, theater friends, people he's worked with, and uh, his significant other, Maggie Renzi, who will go on to produce all of Sales' films, as well as have small roles in each. I look at Sakaka 7, and I I think it's really cool what you brought up about how Richard Linklater, because I think Linklater's attitude is very apparent in many parts of this film, and the same kind of enjoyment you can get out of Linklater's slice-of-life films, such as uh, Days of Confused, can be found in Sakaka 7. There's certain environments at the house, at a pool, uh, mm-hmm. for which provides lots of skinny-dipping oppor- skinny dipping opportunities. And uh, Maggie Renzi plays Katie, who is kind of the Parker Posey-like uh, type A hypercritical pr- member of this group. They visit a theater showing... Uh, where one of their friends is a very bad actress <laughs> in the kind of pirate-based play to which he has nothing but incredibly snarky commentary, uh, including uh, reading the guide saying, she's studied under many uh, of the greats. And she's very poor reply on that is, oh, she did some stuff under these greats, but it wasn't <laughs> studying. <laughs> and <laughs> this is... Uh, Maybe partly explained by the fact that uh, her live-in boyfriend used to date this person. <laughs> yes, there's all kinds of uh, incestuous relationships between all these characters. But the the acting is so natural and the script is so realistic that, that none of it seems forced. None of it seems soap opery. It's all very real life. And, and I want to kind of compare it to a, a little bit of, of what indie films were like before this, because I do think it's, it's something kind of new because a, a lot of earlier indie films came out of the uh, neorealism movement, which we talked a lot about in our Bellatar episode. But uh, for example, there's a wonderful film from 1970 called Wanda, which was the, the one film directed by Barbara Loden. And it's also a micro-budget film, extremely realistic, but it, it, it follows this woman on a, on a fairly tragic journey. And most of the times, these slice-of-life films 
tend to go that route. They tend to be showing us poverty, tragedy, all kinds of things that open up new worlds to us. But what Sales is doing in Secaucus 7, I, I feel, is showing us what could very easily be our own world. These characters, aside from the nude cliff diving, <laughs> probably are behaving very similar to, like, what if I got together with a bunch of my friends from college, with how, he, how we would be. It is so real, so natural. Nobody seems to be acting. Nobody seems to be doing anything that is not just absolutely true. Great example is uh, some characters spend some time at this bar and a couple guys are, are hitting on some locals. And normally in a movie like this, you get some smooth one-liner but but here instead, one of the guys is just going to impress these girls with the, his intricate knowledge of prog rock. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to be working. <laughs> Even though his friend that says, oh, yes, prog rock. Metal goes to college. <laughs> <laughs> um, the bar location is also a great example of what the improvisation that sales managed to do with such a tiny budget because he would film, he filmed the wider shots to establish it when the bar was open. So in very few of his actual actors were there, mm -hmm. but when the actors were meant to be in discussions at the bar, those were done after hours. And I want to say that the entire scene in the bar was filmed over a single 18 hour stretch. There's a particular bit of trivia that I found was really fascinating about how a lady is singing inside this bar and you alternate between a wide shot and a close-up shot. And the standard thing is to have both cameras and then you choose in the editing room. But since film was at a premium and they couldn't waste, they had to conserve as much film as possible. What Sales did was he stood by the wide shot and he had a really long stick that he would use to tap either the guy operating the camera for the wide shot hmm. and the guy operating the close-up shot to turn the camera on and turn it off, thereby not losing any film when the other camera is watching. So he was literally editing on the fly. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah. So we have a couple traditions that, we'll, that start here that will go on through future sales films. One is which John Sales is also an actor. He always knows how to utilize his own acting presence because he's because it's usually, very unique. Yeah, right. He's a very tall, large, gangly guy. He's often cast up. It's always a small role, and it's almost always as kind of a goony, unpleasant character. <laughs> uh, he's right. actually he's actually not too bad a, a guy in this one. He is uh, the character who got married. He's not one of the seven, but somebody who never left town, and and he got married and had a bunch of kids, and he's just like, well, this is my life now. <laughs> mm -hmm. We also get a sales regular, uh, David Stratherum who will go on to have a major roles in a lot of sales movies to come. Here he's got a small role as this really hyper gas station attendant. <laughs> if you were going to make a comparison with this film, with Days Confused, 
Strathairn is this movie's version of the Matthew McConaughey character, the guy right. who stays in town because because the people in the town may change, but the but he sticks there. He's always going to be there, and he makes a an argument how if he was to move to a bigger city, he'd just be another mechanic. But here, if someone's engine doesn't work, they know to Ronnie. They all, everyone knows Ronnie. <laughs> of course, he also says the downsides of it is that uh, all the girls in this town, they've either married or they know about him <laughs> or both. <laughs> there, there's a great dynamic between insiders and outsiders of this group. And what they ha- what we find out they have that, that bonds them and regardless of any drama they have between them is something that will, will always bond them is that they were arrested back in the late sixties on the way to a, a, an anti-war protest and spent uh, a night or so in in jail. And so that's, that's kind of where the title comes from. And we get this uh, great opening credit sequence, which is basically they're introduced through their mug shots before we have any reason to think they should have mug shots. Mm -hmm. But this also makes it interesting every time an outsider tries to come into the insular group, like the, uh, the character working for the Senator, she's got a new boyfriend uh, who also works for the Senator. He's constantly kind of trying to be on his, but he's a little bit of a type a uh, nerdy guy and uh, sort of an Alex P. Keaton. Yeah. A little bit that. And he, but he's still, he really wants to fit in with this group. And it's really interesting to see the dynamic of how the people who have known each other for so long act versus people who, are just meeting the group and are trying to impress them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The actor playing him is Gordon Clapp, who will show up in a whole bunch of other notable sales films. I And I find him quite charming in here, too, because he's very, very um, <laughs> out of place in, the, in these dynamics that the group has had over decades and has some really fun moments. He has one of the worst entries to try to explain people during the charades game, for example. <laughs> and he's roped into a basketball game, which he has never, <laughs> never played. And, uh, and while, while the results of the basketball game have gone on, it, it keeps cutting back to him taking his shoes off going, that's it. I'm, I'm crippled. I'm crippled. <laughs> and he also manages to have the good dope though. <laughs> You never know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's part of what this, that's part of what are the charms on this movie is how the p- way people arrive and the way people leave are nowhere near necessarily the same. People break up, different couplings reemerge, and some couplings just get strengthened in unexpected ways by the, by the conclusion of this film. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Like we've said, it was, it's very basic. There, there's no fancy camera shots. There's hardly camera movement. It was made as basically as can be. But if there was ever a movie where just the strong writing, strong acting, and willingness to allow the simplicity of the project to have a life of its own, this is, is really one of my favorite examples of that. And he'll continue this focus on the personal in his next film.
that would be Liana from 1983. And it's about Liana, a wife and mother, who is bored and seeking to expand her horizons by taking a child psychology course. She unexpectedly bonds with her instructor, Ruth, an older lesbian who she begins to have an affair with. Whether it's true love or not, Liana's life has changed and she must explore her new identity. So this movie is important for a number of reasons. It cements sales writing abilities, which, which are just as strong. He now is crafting as complex a romantic relationship as he did with uh, the friendships of Secaucus 7. And he's aided by some amazing acting, particularly by the two leads, uh, Linda Griffiths and uh, Jane Halloran. And also, this is 1983. Stories of gay couples are not common in Hollywood, and even less common is for them to be treated with realistically, with respect, and with the kind of sensitivity that sales brings in here. I think the only other example I could think of uh, from this era is Robert Town's uh, movie Personal Best, hmm. which came out the year before. But I think this is go, goes even more into the complexity of these relationships. And we have really these two points of drama which is, first of all, how this seemingly straight married woman falls in love with uh, an older woman who is more experienced and understands her homosexuality in the way that Liana is only beginning to learn, and then also dealing with the prejudice all around them, with the idea that, well, now that I've discovered this thing about myself, I have to really keep it a secret. This movie to me is just, and the especially the performance of Linda Griffiths as Liana is a wonder. She is so captivating in someone who has had her experiences have been so constricted by the world around her. And it so gets the thrills and the terrors, the exhilaration and the restrictions that come from learning to live your life and law have love in your life in a whole new way it does the same thing to me that a film that came out recently called call me by your name manages to do and what ang lee's broke back mountain manages to do to just show this sense of awakening and the increasing understanding and the glorious moments and the thrills and the heartaches. And through her performance, you're just right with her as she has to rebuild her life from the ground up after making such a big life change. She has to readjust with all of the friends that she and her husband had had in this college. She has to readjust her position with her, with her two kids. And then her relationship with her lesbian partner 
is so wonderfully nuanced because the older partner has someone for in her life who she is still pining for. And she has to negotiate that too. And whereas Liana had, tells her straight out, you're the only person that I have ever loved. And I will never be so sorry or guilty about that. Right. Liana is such an idealist and, and very much an innocent. Yes. She catches her husband cheating on her. And we, apparently this is not the the first time this has happened but she still wants to try to make it work it actually is her husband who ends the relationship but then as she she meets ruth uh because ruth is is teaching this class that she's become interested in and there's always uh this kind of power dynamic between the two because Ruth is the teacher and Liana's the student, both kind of in class and out of class. And Ruth has been through these relationships throughout her life. And she's cynical. She, she knows kind of to expect the worst. And she even thinks, well, maybe Liana's just uh, experimenting, wanting to see what it's like, and then it's going to go back yeah. to her heterosexual life. But meanwhile, Liana is so openly in love, is so giving of all of herself that she's unprepared for the idea that this relationship might not work, even though she's being told it constantly. Yeah, there's a wonderful scene that from a film called 500 Days of Summer, where after a uh, the main character has wanted to romance with another person and the romance is consummated, he has set to a Daryl to a Hall and Oates song. He's strutting <laughs> down the street. Everyone's giving him the high fi high fives and thumbs up because that's his impression that oh, uh, life has totally changed for. Her. And and but that had a moment two decades earlier in Liana where there's in a scene that is very sweet, but must have just terrorized religious fundamentalists. She's walking down the street and then all these ladies who are doing perfectly ordinary things are now a subject for Liana's potential affections. Mm -hmm. And she's just so thrilled and enthusiastic by all this potential that she had never realized was all around her, that it's a really infectious little montage. Definitely. And just as she is discovering this, she's also slowly realizing that the opposite end of the coin is true too, that she's getting some dirty looks from people. Once it becomes known that she's ha having this relationship, she has this best friend who knows about it. And there becomes a bit of a question as to how this friend is going to take it. And will the friend be able to accept Liana and her new identity for that matter? Will her children? That's right. Her friend, uh, Sandy, is played incredibly well by Joe Henderson as someone who has never been had to deal with uh, the idea of lesbianism. And I think it's just so effective about how she doesn't know how to react at first. She has some real honest heart-to-heart -heart conversations about what what did that mean and what 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 were those feelings that 
and and calls a lot of things that she she thought she knew about her friend into question. And it's very, very fair and non-judgmental about those. Liana makes mistakes. She rushes she rushes to her own judgment on a number of occasions. She does some actions that could be constituted as cheating. But the movie never condemns her for that because it's made clear that this is part of what it means to grow into this. In a, in a way, I just want to add that it, the, the fact that it's child psychology is super is a super interesting facet that she attends this class on child psychology because it's very much, as you said, about an innocent and what does it take to put past these, ch- say, childlike infatuations or to get past it to get a more complex view. And so it's no coincidence that her husband, uh, uh, as she puts it, well, did you have a good time fucking in that sandbox? Because it's over at a child's playset where she sees him cheating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so different levels of how people have developed and the maturity levels are not at all just restricted to being insufficiently honest case, which I think is a real cool thing that the movie shows us. I do want to kind of put a pin in that point you made about Sales being a, a non-judgmental director in this case, because I think it's going to end up being one of those consistent things that we're going to see throughout Sales' career. He is endlessly curious about people who are not like him. Yes. And he approaches all of these people in that same non-judgmental way. And so we get to learn and we get to have these new worlds exposed to us purely through characterizations and through uh, writing and directing that's brave enough to follow them anywhere they'll go. Exactly. I I completely agree on on that. I would say there's just one tiny detriment that I would say on... Liana is that the husband, unfortunately, does not quite treat it as robustly or as fairly as some of the other characters. Even his randy athletic colleague at the university, played by John Sales, <laughs> has a moment of nuance after what is the world's most clumsiest pass under the guise of attempting to meet up with a friend. <laughs> yes, John Sales has, has perfected Skeezy as yes. an actor here. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Liana's husband's name is, is Dick, and he is pretty much shown as a jerk who is has a very low level of respect for Liana even before she makes her change. The movie gives a sense that his serial cheating has been papered over, although in a rather brilliant move, it was pointed out that Liana herself used to be a student of his. Mm -hmm. For me, I find it really funny how unpleasant this guy is because you could say that Liana does not want a dick in the picture (laughs) for three different reasons. Well, but but is it not real? Because... Not everyone's a good guy, and we, we we don't like this character, although he is given some levels. 
he does not want their his their children to be estranged from her. So there is a scene where he's trying to explain her homosexuality to their kids. And even though we've seen previous scenes of him being uh, verbally abusive and cruel, uh, you see him actually trying to explain this uh, to their kids in a way that will not alienate them from their mother. So I think he does have some grace notes, but just as, as we get into some political movies later, we're going to see people who are on the wrong side of the political situation. There's no doubt that this character is on the wrong side of, of most of what's going on in, in this film, but I don't know that that's not realistic as well. Hmm. I do see how he's how he's very he is considerate of his he is considerate of his kids, but his attitude for Liana is such a fairly awful one sided dynamic. Though it does lead to a really great line, maybe one of my favorite lines that Sales has written, which is when he and Liana have a confrontation near the end, and he says to an ex- he says to an extent, "Oh, why have you found the lost love?" and and you realize you should be have this moment for yourself and so on and then says that's all quotes from the book that your new lover has written hmm. and liana is clearly hurt but she has just an amazing statement in response she says just because you can argue better than me does not mean you're right another example of great writing mhm and as another low-budget film with, with no stars, it, it's, it seems like this is a good example of how Sales is able to make the exact movie he wants to make because it did fly under the radar. It, it, it wasn't something that was meant to uh, open in every uh, suburban theater in the early 80s, but as a small independent film, it had the, it had the room to say exactly what it wanted to say and it's powerful now i have to imagine in 1983 it was even more so it's tough nowadays when people are so much more open towards different kinds of uh sexual expression to just realize just how absolutely restrictive the world was back then by way of comparison I, I believe when the time that the movie was made, AIDS had not yet been publicly acknowledged by the U.S. as a disease. Yeah, at this point, I'm not sure it was even known to the general public. Exactly. And so to be able to take this kind of relationship and give it every bit of consideration and honesty and affection, and appreciation to the extent of any other heterosexual presentation given to film is stunning. Well, Sales is going to continue to work in the theme of relationships in his next movie, Baby It's You, released also in 1983. And forever 
the dollar tip. Yes. And then I would retire to my palatial penthouse suite. I'd write a song about the day. Yeah. I'd swing myself to sleep. It's a high school love story set in the early 60s. Jill, played by Rosanna Arquette, is a well-behaved drama student, while Sheik, played by Vincent Spano, is a sharp-dressed wannabe singer whose love for Jill is only matched by his disdain for any authority. Life gets more complicated for the couple when Jill leaves her college and the early 60s become the late 60s. This was a bit of a transitional period movie for sales because he got the blessing of a major studio, Paramount Studios, to make this picture. And this simultaneously gave him enough money to help fund some other pictures and helped sour him on the (laughs) movie studio experience the film's severely truncated it's it was a little under two hours but supposedly 40 minutes were cut from the film and when i watch it i have these two competing reactions in that usually when a studio starts hacking away you're supposed to feel bad about that But when I see what the results were on screen and I think, do I really want to see 40 more minutes of this stuff? I'm not exactly on the studio's side, but I'm not exactly sure I'd want to see a two and a half hour version of this particular film. And part of it is because the robustness of the characters and the people around them is a little missing, maybe significantly missing in this film. Well, well, what's missing is the trueness of it. We've been very spoiled with these uh, two films that came before it, with its level of honesty and and a depiction of real life. And what we've got here is, is now a set of movie cliches. Particularly the first two thirds of the movie, uh, which takes place in high school uh, with the usual high school trope of uh, the cast being all in their late 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I know and, that I know I was actually looking for the uh, uh, for uh, the 40 year old pinky Tuscadero character from Greece. Right, well well Gre- <laughs> you just said the word uh, <laughs> which is again Greece is the word Greece is the word right <laughs> and, and that's just the, the source heart reminded me of the plot the plot of Greece, the good girl, the bad boy, everything without the music. And uh, Greece isn't isn't the only precedent for it. This this is a story that has been told so many times in romantic movies, particularly those set in the fifties. The beats are so familiar, and I, I I'm watching this thinking, oh God, they're they're really doing this. They're just going to go through this set of cliches exactly as we expect them, and it's not 
done any favors by the casting of mm. Vincent Spano, who is, I think, attempting a early Richard Gere kind of thing. He's introduced as this kind of larger-than-life figure, this this greaser who dresses in suits to high school and has this really rebellious attitude. And Spano doesn't have the notes to play this, not even in the cliche way we, we'd see it in, in better movies uh, of this topic. Uh, now, I like Rosanna Arquette better. She is doing what she needs to do, but unfortunately, due to the the subject matter, she doesn't need to do much. She's playing uh, as a drama student. She You could see her acting, but you're kind of supposed to because drama is such a part of her life. But also, these, these two characters have no chemistry with each other. Right. The, the lack of chemistry dooms this movie to a great deal, as is what you said on Spano's necessity to have a charismatic presence because he's shown by sales. I literally think from a pan from the from his uh, incredibly fancy loafers all the way up <laughs> to his dapper jacket to his perfectly slicked back hair and the guy inhabiting it does a performance that nothing so much reminds me of I have to say a dinner theater representation of Judd Nelson's character from The Breakfast Club <laughs> <laughs> it's just as basic anti-rebel you're not the boss of me man that might have been more appropriate to Bart Simpson. <laughs> and Spano does not show any particular aspect aside from his suits that would really compel anyone to be amazed or charmed by this person. Right, except that he's the type of character that, that, you're good, supposed that to. good girls in 50s movies are always going to be charmed by. <laughs> right, right, exact, exactly right. That you're supposed to uh, pr pursue him because he's the big, tall, rebel guy. And the rebelliousness of him takes a very strange turn in, in, in a couple ways, but I also want to point, point out that his entire way of pursuit is just, there is no style to it. It's basically puppy dog enthusiasm to a degree of like, I believe he tries to proposition and go by, I like you. Right. I really like you. <laughs> I think you'd like me too. And I'm just like, it's like, this is a bar episode of Barney the Dinosaur here right, now, in now, terms of seduction technique. Now, now, here's the thing. <laughs> if it was Richard Gere or John Travolta or somebody in this period with that level of charisma, we might have bought this. But Vincent Spano does not have that charisma to spare for this. Right, right. And what the movie does, though, to have him have this style, or what's the captivating thing about him, is different. But it's different more, you know, sense of that's weird more than wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because this is a guy who is obsessed with... Frank Sinatra, and is always ready to talk about how Frank is the ultimate guide to life. 
is that's a really interesting tack to make for a 1980s movie. <laughs> but then it's played against Rosanna Arquette getting to college, and you see the world of the late 60s with all the rampant drug abuse, the promiscuity, and then you have this guy playing Sinatra tunes mm-hmm. to an audience of blue hairs. I'm not sure if the movie really expects you to do something with him aside from going, oh God, you are such a failure. But that's what kind of it comes off with nothing to hold on to in spite of that. Right. The, the, the last third of the movie is interesting in, in a way the first two thirds are not because it has been going so completely by the numbers. Now, when we get into the late sixties, we almost get a, a forest gump like uh, <laughs> dismissal of the hippie generation. And, <laughs> and, and, and we, we, we enter a different set of cliches, but I, I was a little relieved because finally at one point I'm like, Oh, at least I don't know where this is going now. Mm-hmm. It, it does. The movie does, should get credit that it shows a lot of Arquette's dorm room life and that perspective of the girls getting together, whether it's hanging at a pool hall, uh, featuring a uh, a wonderfully uh, acerbic performance from a young Tracy Pollen, or they have a big session, a uh, big hash session in in the dorm room, and one of her friends just gets a little overboard on the drug use, and then she can be found when when Arquette's talking on the phone. She's in different states of odd placement down the hallway. (laughs) That's kind of the closest that Baby It's You gets to the idea of showing a world of all these different people and different attitudes that we hadn't seen before (laughs) that Sales had done so well in his earlier two movies. Yeah, it's one of those movies that uh, unfortunately seems to find its footing right before it ends. (laughs) (laughs) To uh, To be fair, that's probably... The best, if you're going to finally find your footing, (laughs) that's probably better to do that than than to start off really great and then go, uh, then just have the air slowly deflate out out of you. And spoiler alert, I do want to give it some credit that the main couple does not end up together, uh, because that would be the the cliche move, and it does avoid that at the end. Sort of. Well, they have a moment. Sort of. A, a nice moment of closure, but I do think it insinuates they are not going to end up together. Um, what Sales, I think, has done is his first trick, which is to have your cake and eat it, too. In the story, it may be the that they won't end up together, but what's the last thing you see mm-hmm. is basically Vincent Spano's character's ultimate dream realization that the band, the hippie band on stage, by his request get to play Strangers in the Night, which has been his favorite song, and he's sung it himself multiple times earlier in the movie. And the crowd in this bit of hokum, kind of like in a Blues Brothers touch, the crowd of counterculture types who have been attending this party, they're like at first aghast, like, what is this lousy, rotten, old person music? But by the end, they're all won over to slow dance to this, to the greatest song ever, Frank Sinatra's uh, Strangers in the Night. And they're, and the last thing you see is uh, the couple twirling around together. Mm-hmm. So it is a bit of fairy tale ending, even if the basic plot points don't <laughs> suggest a happy end. 
And of course, what late '60s uh, band doesn't know "Strangers in the Night"? Uh, but, <laughs> right. But now you, we're talking music, and, and that brings me to kind of a particular reason that I'm surprised and 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 saddened that I don't like this film more because sales also brings into this film a a great use and respect for Bruce Springsteen. Now, anybody who knows me, and since you all don't, I'm just going to tell you, <laughs> I am a Bruce Springsteen super fan. I love the man's work beyond reason. So I was so excited when this movie that all has a pretty terrific soundtrack to begin with of, of period songs goes completely non-period and at a number of points expertly brings in these Springsteen tunes. So when we're introduced to Vincent Spano, we're play, uh, they play It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, mm-hmm. and you have uh, the lyrics, he had skin like leather, a diamond hard look of a cobra. Springsteen was obviously thinking of completely other, other things, but it, it works as a movie moment. And every time these Springsteen songs are brought into it, like my adrenaline got up and it's like, yes, this is the movie I'd rather be watching. <laughs> and somebody who noticed this was Bruce Springsteen, mm. because the next little mini phase in a sales career was to direct three of the videos from Springsteen's Born in the USA album. John, huh. John Sales directed uh, the title track, also I'm on Fire and Glory Days. I'm on fire yeah, is the one where, where Springsteen tries to act, which uh, he can't act. <laughs> All right. He gave it a shot. <laughs> if there was anybody who could uh, lead him into that world, it would be uh, it would be John Sales. And he had a friend who was a great baseball player, which will come again soon. <laughs> yes. So after these excursions of videos of Springsteen, Sales wanted to take a little bit of a step back from his experiences at Paramount. And he did this by making a fun, crazy indie effort named The Brother from Another Planet, made in 1984. There's a star waiting in the sky. This stars Joe Morton as a mute spaceman stranded in Harlem. He may look like a young African-American man, but he has strange powers and stranger three-toed feet. But what comes through in his dealings with all sorts of New Yorkers is his empathy and his need for connection, which may turn out to be helpful when his home planet sends out bounty hunters to retrieve him. This is the first John Sayles movie I ever saw, and... You're you're right. It's it's just so unusual. It's a return to indie form after his flirtations with with Hollywood. Although you do sense 
maybe some of his Hollywood history rubbed off on this one because we mentioned that he helped write an early draft of E.T. And there are maybe some E.T. elements in here as this alien is making connections. But the way he makes those connections actually reminds me more of the Hal Ashby film being there in which uh, Peter Sellers uh, ah. plays a, a mentally challenged gardener who rises to the peaks of powers by having a very limited vocabulary and just saying things that were made sense and were simple to him. And then everyone applied their own prejudices and interpretations to what he said to make them think that he was saying the most brilliant things they've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Now here it's really key that the alien is a mute because all he has really is eye contact. Uh, Joe Morton is a brilliant actor and this is, this is a brilliant performance all done through facial expressions. And you're constantly relating to this character And so is everyone else in the movie, because he is a character that listens, and that causes everyone else in the movie to talk and talk and talk and let us know how they view the world and how they view uh, the alien, and, and everything is revealed in this very unconventional way. Yeah, I think that's a great point you made. With the being there comparison, it takes this idea that people need to go and express their feelings or prejudices, and his openness is exactly the thing outlet that lets them deliver these feelings and expressions while while talking to him and about him. Reminds me of something that the great documentarian Errol Morris wanted to do as a philosophy of his, of his filmmaking. He said, once people are done talking through, they have 10 minutes of stuff that they're ready to tell other people. But then when that's done and they have to still keep talking because there won't be another response, the things that come, come out of their mouth are almost always fascinating. Hmm. And it explores that as well as this is the first tinge of something that sales will bring out to great effect in his later films. This is the first instance where that very sensibility of people expressing and reacting to a person is based on a consciousness of race and racism. It's a it's a, a social comment that sales is bringing to his off kilter take on on an on an alien visitor. Yeah, there's no cheap humor here. Where sales is about to head into overtly political territory, here he is immersed in political subtext, and because the film is so good-natured and Joe Morton is such an effective lead. We're entertained as some really powerful messages. 
comparing the experience of being black in the United States with that of being an alien, of being an outsider in certain areas. But then once he finds his community in Harlem, this sense of community is really strong. There's all kinds of wonderful supporting players backing him up with, with, with great humor. And one of the messages I, I really like uh, about the movie is how when he does find himself victimized, when he is pursued through these bonds that he, he has made and people he's helped, he has this uh, power to heal, he has this power to, uh, to, to fix things, uh, and as we discussed before, more than anything else, to listen, he is rewarded with loyalty from the people he's met. This may be the first sales movie which makes that explicit of the idea of a community, of people bonding together against a, a common opponent. And it seems that at this point, it's which is cool because it's such a low-budget film, that we see the roots and the seeds of a social consciousness mm -hmm. of what does it mean to be a part of a society? How can the society improve? And, and a sense of humanism in, in a global sense or a countrywide sense or a citywide sense about how everyone is quote unquote in it together to, to put it one way. And on a filmmaking level, it's very impressive how sales utilizes his hardly any money. Yeah to create this uh, science fiction environments somewhat in the same way that Godard did with Alphaville ah. by just showing things that are natural and via context, letting them seem like they're science fiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a really nice touch where he is taken aback. The brother is taken aback by some graffiti. Because he finds out that the scrawlings on the wall are actually messages from his home planet. <laughs> it's a really intergalactic method of giving us a different look at the kind of scrawling that you might see every day in the big city. Yes, you have to look literally at everything with new eyes because... We're seeing the familiar setting of New York City from the point of view of a character who is completely unfamiliar with it. Also have to bring up one of the most uh, more fun aspects of it is uh, the brothers pursuers who are referred to in the credits as the men in black, which mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe the movie of the same title that would come out a decade later probably huh. uh, was paying attention. They are mm -hmm. played by... John Sayles himself and uh, David Str Strathairn. <laughs> They're one of the more distinct aliens. Some of the, my most favorite distinct take on aliens 
uh, with the ultimate example of al- the aliens for me being the uh, cocaine psycho killing slug from the hidden being the ultimate example of the <laughs> of the of, uh, a depiction on aliens. The best special effect might be John Sales with the slicked black black hair that was with whatever product he had left over from Baby It's You, <laughs> <laughs> both wearing matching. Han Solo from Star Wars leather vests, and then portraying their alienness by making a loud noise that may have almost come from the sin of Harold Diddlebach. Wow, yeah. <laughs> they have the same awkwardness uh, with their, their hu- human form, uh, but with none of the empathy that the brother shows. So that leads to just a lot of fun humor as they are both meant to be intimidating and irredeemably dorky. <laughs> yes, a very rare combination that is uh, pulled off uh, incredibly well by both those guys. <laughs> There's a super fun fight scene <laughs> that that was in, involved in there uh, where they get beset upon by some guys, some of which are doing attempting martial arts moves, some of which has a bat which, uh, which sails his alien just methodically catches that he does sort of a ballet twirl and then smashes it in half with his with his bare hands <laughs> <laughs> and this i i really love this scene that particular scene because it also features the great steve james as odell one of the people who tried to attack the aliens and he's a wonderful character actor that i know from a lot of under um recognized films he's in the american ninja series for one thing and he may have has his biggest popular acclaim was in Kung Fu Joe in I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Featuring one of the greatest lines of all time where he goes and says, he says a picture of Spike Lee and he goes, ah, oh, teacher, teacher. <laughs> and one of the characters says, wow, that's amazing. You mean Bruce Lee was your martial arts teacher? And he goes, no. Acting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always charmed to see him in the movie, and he does super cool in this in that particular scene. Yeah. And it is a charming film, and cannot be any more different from what is to come next. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingle, their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow another ton, or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. Which is Matewan, released in 1987, Based on the events leading up to the bloody battle of Maidwan, a real-life gunfight between striking miners and their allies, and the mining company thugs who respond to union demands with brutal violence. Chris Cooper is Joe Kenahan, a union organizer not only targeted by the company, but also dealing with dissension among the workers when trying to unite African-American and Italian immigrants with the white locals. The thing that makes this most notable in Sales' career thus far is while Brother from Another Planet is looking at the community of Harlem, you know, 
measure of positivity to how they react to the brother. In this one, it takes that feeling and delivers it on a massive expanse of scale. The social consciousness is so much vaster because you deal with numerous characters amongst the workers, each of which have their own, not only their own distinct groups, their distinct set of common interests, but the people who inhabit those groups all have their own personal interests and their own attitudes towards how to deal with the members of the other groups. And this is tied in with such a powerful feeling of the need for workers' rights, for labor rights, and the vermilitude of the period and the details of what these workers have had to go through that harkens back to me, among other films, Steinbeck's and John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath. It's a really good comparison. John Sayles has been threatening to become a political filmmaker all along, and here that side of him just bursts out. He is angry at what's going on in these early stages of the labor movement and the the ferocity of the battle and through his his filmmaking he captures that anger it, it, it is one of the greatest political films ever made and 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 it it, mm. it treats its subject with such respect and allows us a real insight into these struggles that in different formats we're still still dealing with today as far as the labor movement's place in American life is still not secure. And it's very enlightening to see how this went down early on in its history. There's also, I think, a leveling up of the filmmaking going on. We've been talking about a lot of low-budget movies and John Sayles' scripts and, and acting, but what we're going to get to talk about from this point forward is the gorgeousness of how some of these films have, are shot. And this is his first film with uh, Haxel Wexler. As the cinematographer, a mighty cinematographer known for films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Days of Heaven. The combination of sales directing and, and Wexler's cinematography really brings us into this time period. So the 1920 periodness of it is absolutely vivid. To give you guys a sense of just how much of an amazing transition Madawan is from his early films. I want to give maybe a not 100% accurate analogy of like, imagine if Kevin Smith made a movie that looked like Barry Lyndon. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute. I really liked his early films, but where the hell did this come from? This has such a level of precision of getting all the details from the uniforms to the nature of the camps to the 
to the shanty towns, to the, even the dialects done by, by the different groups. The vermilitude is just so astounding in a way that we hadn't seen in sales movies up to this point. It, like you said, it really is a step forward. And it, I think one of the movie's greatest qualities, aside from how it delivers these communities and this level of honest depiction of their situation so well, is they have a great central character in Chris Cooper's performance. Chris Cooper has a quality he shares with Gary Cooper, no relation or Maybe the relation, I don't know. (laughs) But a sense of fundamental decency pours off from this guy. And isn't that ironic that as he gets older, he'll generally be typecast as villains? Yes. But in in these early sales films, he is put in this uh, heroic role, and he is excellent as a leading man. The acting in this film is universally fantastic but i do want to call out maybe the first already um established star to work in a sales film uh james earl jones james earl jones steals this movie Hmm. he he delivers a performance of immense power first of all physical power because he's a big man and the first thing we see is uh him and uh the african-american workers who are arriving by train i believe they're they're meant to be scabs but they're not willing to be part of that Mm -hmm. and they're being attacked by some of the locals and uh jones just physicality really shows what what a formidable person he is on one level. And then when he starts delivering dialogue and talking about the difference between uh, the struggles of the African-American workers from the white workers and, and later the Italian immigrants, he, he's he's got such gravitas that every time James Earl Jones is on screen, I was just riveted. Yeah. And it leads to, to one, one of the great kind of more personal dramatic moments, there's a, a point at which the workers are questioning Chris Cooper's uh, loyalty. They think he might be a turncoat. And when they're convinced of this, they have James Earl Jones is the one they assign to kill him. And the internal acting that, that Jones brings to those scenes yes. where he ha- where he's having these friendly conversations with really the first person to who, who has treated him as an equal and as a man with respect, and now he's got to kill him. And so the, what's going on internally with that performance is so effective. I agree with you on all that. He, he, it is a great performance by James Earl Jones in a career full of fine performances. But I got to get it back to Chris Cooper because it's not just that he delivers the same kind of sense of decency and also a low key Mm -hmm. delivery of heroism that Gary Cooper also shared in his films. But one of the things I think the film does remarkably is it points out the value of that decency, the value of this character, but also 
the frailty of how this character is does not have the imposing presence of a James Earl Jones or of a Gary Cooper to impart his will at shrugged like on the world. You see what I'm saying? He, you see how decent he is, but you also understand how this world may not be ready for the kind of principles that Chris Cooper espouses and is clearly dedicated for and dedicate his life right. towards pursuing. Because he is advocating nonviolence. It, it just occurred to me that there are probably some similarities between this performance and the way Ben Kingsley appre- uh, approached Gandhi. Oh, yeah. Uh, hmm. just, just in the sense that they have to be forceful. They have to be powerful while really trying to ensure that people do not lower themselves to the base reaction of violence which is really difficult because the company is portrayed as, as ruthless as, as any villains we've seen on film particularly the head uh, company thug played by uh, Kevin Tige is is one of those absolutely hissable villains and every bit of bile that drips from his mouth is as hateful as can be mm-hmm. and him and his his partner just will will shift to violence at any given moment and so we as an audience struggle in the same way that the workers in the film struggle with how do you respond to this violence and, and Chris Cooper's characters always trying to say if you sink down to their level, they win. Right. That's such an interesting dynamic that this movie does. And now as we're talking about it, Brad, I'm very curious how this particular dynamic goes in showing the situation that Sales wants to show for these workers. Because sales gives such a level of appreciation and honesty towards these communities of workers. Yet when you take the other side, they are some of the most nastiest pieces of work. This side of the reverend from Night of the Hunter or John Doe, uh, or I guess for a recent example would be uh, Joachim Phoenix's uh, Emperor from Gladiator. So I wonder... Is that an effective move to make the workers' views so robust and nuanced and yet make the villains such amazingly hissable, hateable entities? Well, we were talking before about how political a film this is. And I I think it's important to note that, that sales is not trying to create a do a journalistic study here he is not trying to say well you know there there's good points on all sides he is saying that there is a side that is right and there is a side that is wrong the side that is right because as you said has so many gradations even to where we 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 like or don't like some of the characters or like or don't like some of their methods but he's really clear 
that the and, and look this 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 is a historical fact. This is based on something that really happened. These people were not fucking around. These people were ready to shoot somebody in the face rather than give up any profits for the company. And so as a political piece, I am unbothered by the villains being portrayed as villainous. I don't know if I would say I'm bothered with it, but I do find it interesting how I'm I when I watch Madawan and I do love the movie, but I feel my love for the film turns from one kind to another. And as you know, I'm a fan of many an action movie where the righteous hero gives the disgusting hissable villain their incredible just desserts. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think that Madawan for me turns from one particular type of film into that kind of film. And it does that with the arrival of the sheriff played by David Strathairn. He is this presence of unstoppable, unbendable will to oppose that Chris Cooper is not. And so the movie does a bit of gymnastics for me in that when the villains show up and they're so evil and so nasty and the threat is so obvious that Cooper's dedication really is shown to be just so there's the opposition for him is seems so great at the point. And then when Stratharin makes his appearance, I feel Oh, yes, there is a way. There is something that can oppose them. And it leads to this conclusion, which is both harsh, yet I found very satisfying in a way that these guys get a measure of comeuppance. Yes, but it's not really a victory. This this stage of the labor movement does not depict new labor laws, justice for workers. We understand that in the wake of the violence in Meitwan, all this will happen due to the efforts of these martyrs, but also due to the efforts of union members and leaders in other situations in other parts of the country. So it, it, it's kind of interesting that, that we, the movie does not take us to the, the conclusion. It actually depicts this very tragic episode in the midst of the struggle, not at the end of the struggle. But I, I think it's an interesting contrast you brought up between uh, Cooper and Stratheran because Cooper, uh, in addition to trying to keep this under control, he, he, he is doing everything he can to avoid the Battle of Maitwan taking place. Mm-hmm. But Stratheran is very interesting in and of itself is because he believes in the duty of his badge. He is a law and order guy, and he initially is kind of hostile to Cooper, and he's like, don't be bringing any of this crazy business into our town. Mm-hmm. But then when the company goes so out of control in their brutality, uh, Strathairn still 
holding on to the kind of law and order ideal then becomes inflexible in the other direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a little bit of cake eating and cake having, I think, on Sales's part, which I'm still thinking to myself has how how satisfying it is. I find it very satisfying. I don't know how sh- satisfying it should be because Skrtharin to me is the feeling of relief that there is a person who will follow the law and understands the value of the law and will, no matter what the powerful the forces are arrayed, if it's not the law, it doesn't matter. He will put a stop to it. But what ends up happening is nothing but bloodshed. So when we leave the Battle of Matewan, just about all our characters are dead. Villains, heroes, people we like, people we dislike, it is a bloodbath. So I'm not sure that the, the, the movie is saying that Stratheran's strategy is the right one or the one we should root for, but it is the, the one that led to this historic, tragic event. Yeah, I want to run a quick uh, comparison by you that you may or may not like when how one of the people who died was Chris Cooper, who was advocating nonviolence the whole time, and he still went into that situation of the massacre with the intent on nonviolence. And it reminds me of maybe he needed to he needed to go the same way that Barbara Jean needed to go at Nashville. In other words, he was dedicated towards a purity and a kind of dedication to an ideal that sort of had to be sacrificed in this point for this situation to move forward in whatever direction, positive or negative. Yeah, I, I think that's legitimate, and there is a sense that the, the dead in, in these scenes are martyrs. But there's also another color of Cooper's character is that once violence did break out, he stood with his workers. He yeah. didn't leave the scene. He didn't just let let what will happen happen. He did everything he could to to avoid this moment. But when the moment happened, he stood with his people. Right. <laughs> okay, he's Barbara Jean and Haven Hamilton. From <laughs> 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 All yes, these but references, a, by the way, to our Nashville discussion from the Robert, the Robert Altman, Altman, po- Altman podcast. podcast. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm taking the comparisons a bit much, uh, of course. But that is a really great point you make, that it's not just his dedication to a principle, but his dedication to the people that he was espousing these principles to as well. And I guess that underlines the heart of it, is that ultimately it's about supporting the people. The principles are a way of giving that support, not the not a way to justify your own ideology. And I guess that shows what Cooper's character was really about. And these are things that sales values and perhaps will also apply to the idea of supporting a team. Yes, that couldn't have been said better than uh, by Robert De Niro's Al Capone in The Untouchables, Brad. And the concerns of what a team needs to do is the subject of Sales' next film, Eight Men Out from 1988. <laughs> 
And this tells the true story of the infamous 1919 World Series and the Chicago White Sox players throwing the games in return for payoffs from underworld gamblers. Underpaid and resentful of their treatment by team owners, a number of key players are bought off while others play their best, and it soon will be impossible for Shoeless Joe Jackson to say it ain't so. So on the one hand, sales returns to more enjoyable subject matter. In fact, Eight Men Out may be the John Sales movie that most people are familiar with. It's a great gateway yeah. sales, to be sure. Partially due to its all-star cast of supporting actors uh, that we'll get, it, get into, but the, the same authenticity of period that was so dramatic in Matewan is now used to strike a more, a lighter tone. And some of the same themes are there. John Sayles is really interested in this idea of corruption. Matewan was, a, was about it. And, and so is eight men out. And in this case, it's corruption on a number of different levels because you have the the gamblers and the gangsters who proposed this uh, throwing of the game you have the players who were willing to participate and then you have uh the white Sox organization itself which again treats labor very poorly and mm -hmm. these players do have legitimate grievances mm -hmm. this is such an expansion even on the ideas in madawan because that dichotomy I was describing about how how these different groups of workers are against this absolute evil of the of the company, but here even the gangsters have levels within levels. <laughs> there are gangsters who have certain attitudes about the players, and other ones that are whose attitudes to the players are totally malevolent, and yet others who were former players themselves, <laughs> and so they'll be corrupt. But just to a point, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing how nuanced that side comes in. And also this sense of the workers fighting against powerful interests. But it expands the definition of these powerful interests to include the shady underworld figures. And then eventually to include the halls of government and justice itself to show that is not lacking in ways of pushing people down in an unfair way either. There's such a balancing act being achieved here between all these dark impulses and the joy of depicting baseball. Yes. And this is my, my favorite baseball film. And I think one of the, re one of the reasons it is, is because it depicts the sport in a way that no other baseball film does. In every other baseball film, really in almost every other sports film, there's this formula of the underdog team. Are they going to win the big game? There'll, there'll be challenges, but and, and, and it'll look hopeless, but in the end, somebody will come through and save the day. There'll be the, the, the surprise home run. But in this movie, because the goal 
of many of the key players is to lose. Because they are throwing the game, the entire center of gravity of how these ball games are shot is completely shifted and turns what has kind of become sports movie cliche into something entirely original. Yes, I am amazed by what you brought up about the ideals of baseball, because I think this is maybe a little bit of a mirror negative of what what Madawan was doing in the sense of great evil on the side of those agents. Here, there is still this level of great joy in the the simple pleasures of baseball. Baseball is kind of held in America to have this platonic ideal of of team spirit and camaraderie. And I the film does wonders, wonders with using that level of idealism about sporting uh, about sporting chances and and uh, doing right by your team and you don't let your buddy down combined with the harsh harsh reality of all these competing interests and and ways that people fall short and i think the film rewards rather endlessly when you look at all the different members of the team and all their competing motivations my god dude like among one of these films many values is that what 12 angry men do to jur- the jury <laughs> system this does to eight angry ball players <laughs> but but actually some of them are angry but some of them are oblivious to the corruption going in hand some of them know about the corruption but like in the like in our description they're going to play anyway and some of them have that attitude totally changed like there's a wonderful character arc done by the pitcher of the first game played by Dave- David Stefarin who's the first person who gets successfully recruited by some players who were already in on it. But he successfully convinced when he was supposed to get a bonus for playing 30 games, mm-hmm. but they held him out for only playing 29 just so he wouldn't get that money. And he's very dedicated towards throwing the game. But as the movie goes on, he changes his attitude. And Sturtharn does a masterful performance, I think, because... When you get to the later points of the film, you're not actually sure if the suspense doesn't come from will will they win the game. The suspense comes from will he throw the game or not. And how the players now interact with each other with some of them not knowing who to trust. Yes. And so the players who are trying to win the game probably personified by uh, John Cusack's character, Buck Weaver. Mm -hmm. He is this character who is not on board with the scam at all, but he's also a loyal enough team player that he's not going to rat out his fellow teammates. Mm -hmm. But the dynamics are just so fascinating because there's like one, for example, interaction with his attitude versus Bill Irwin as Eddie Collins, who's this very straight arrow guy who won't hang with the group for beers. He just mm-hmm. drinks ginger ale. And there's a point when during one of when during one of the middle games where he says, hey, well, if you're gonna have a good game and Cusack replies, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? It's like, well, I think you know what I mean. You, you're, I mean, I mean, you're going to do the best that you're doing what you're here to do. And he's like, okay, but I'm watching you. Yeah. 
all the dynamics are fascinating in that. Right. And uh, again, I have to uh, say the casting director of this movie might be the biggest star of all because they have brought together so many people of such quality, even in outside the team itself. Studs Terkel. Yes. A legendary Chicago old-timey journalist and writer who, who's got one of those personalities that an actor could not recreate, brings his actual self to the role of one of the announcers, his fellow announcer being played by John Sayles himself, also very effectively, especially because apparently... Sales looked exactly like Ring Lardner, who was the the character he was playing. <laughs> You've got Christopher Lloyd as one of the low level gamblers. You got Michael Lerner as the big gangster Arnold Rothstein. You've got Charlie Sheen in a role too small for him to ruin, where he's <laughs> just <laughs> well, he does yeah. play a character known for being dumb, right? Right, and also DB Sweeney as Shoeless Joe Jackson seems a, a little dim throughout uh, as well. The thing that Eight Men Out uh, establishes for John Sales is his ability to deal with really large casts. You don't have a singular lead. Maybe the closest we get to is John Cusack, but really it's more of an ensemble piece. And Sales is is expert at letting us know these characters with very little information, maybe through uh, the persona of, of the actors more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, there's certain ones which work off the persona quite well. Like Michael Rooker's character, for example, has Rooker's sense of menace and sense of being out of control in a really great way. And to, to your point about how it contrasts the, the, all the multi-level corruption versus the idealism of baseball, there's a scene where a ball is hit to Rucker's character, and he just catches it. Because like, oh my god, the baseball's coming to me, <laughs> I can grab it. And he grabs it, and it's an out. And this game that they were supposed to throw turns out to be a victory for them, so he catches it, and he's elated for a bit, then goes... Oh, shit. <laughs> um, so he works well. I agree completely with, with Turkle, who's like this little fire plug of pure authenticity. I'm not saying the dude's old, but there is a real chance that he may have done the original <laughs> Telegraph about the White Sox <laughs> scandal as it was happening. He had been live, te- live telegraphing about it, the live tweeting of its day. <laughs> also, I got a shout out to uh, John Mahoney who plays uh, one of the coaches. And he is a straight arrow who uh, is not in on the shenanigans, but he's also pretty smart. And when he finds out what's going on and, and, and has his suspicions on various players, the levels of which uh, that, that he acts while trying to maintain his role as a coach while knowing that some of these players yes. are stabbing the team in the back. Mm-hmm. Mahoney, brilliant Chicago stage actor, mostly known popularly as the father from Frasier, gives another one of his standout performances. Yeah, that, I'm really glad you brought that up, because that aspect you mentioned earlier, I think he's the personification of that contrast of a guy who he's not a person who's dumb like Sheen or oblivious like Irwin's Eddie Collins character. He knows what's going on. So he understands the, the corruption that's happening internally and from outside yet 
in a really powerful moment near the end of the movie when they're doing their trial. He's really tied up in knots trying to describe his many, many feelings on, on the situation. And then he's asked straight out, well, what do you think of these guys now, mm. knowing all you know? And his reply is, these are the best bunch of ball players I've ever seen, which causes what in an ordinary movie is this big triumphant <laughs> cheering section as, as, the, as everyone in the uh, courtroom is, uh, leaps up in adulation, is what he said. But there's such a tinge to it and such a great coda to it because both Turkle's character and Sales' Ring Lardner both say, well, that gets you the votes in Chicago, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. The film doesn't end with the game, which, again, distinguishes it from so many sports films. You don't even see the moment when the Sox lose their last game. Right. You switch very quickly to the consequences for the players and the case that's being made against them. And again, how it's in the interest of the team of the bigwigs for these players not to be found guilty, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they have to be made examples of. And even John Cusack's character, who was not part of the scam because he played ball with those players he knew he keeps asking for his own trial and they're like no you're you're out too yeah and to cusack's performance i have never seen cusack better he's usually this cool quirky guy who just finds things uh, a little out of control but lloyd dobler he'll go maintain <laughs> his way through it here he is great at bringing in reserves of just agonized anguish at his situation and a similar level of anguish towards should he have done more should he have mentioned this should he have should he have brought this up and because the those different value systems of his are pulled into conflict you don't rat on on your team you don't rat on on your buddies but at the same time you're going to have something that you consider personally wrong as a result Cusack embodies both that conflict and the righteousness of a guy doing his job well and getting screwed nonetheless. And he really delivers on that. And Sales delivers really on the entire film as a passing of an era, because we also see the, from the point of view of the kids who are watching the game and the idea that before the Black Sox scandal, that there was this innocence to the sport and that innocence is infused even in the opening credits when the, the credits are presented on screen in the same trajectory as a baseball flying through the air. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, this is a great loss of innocence movie. It's a great way for sales to continue to work out the themes that make him such a great director. Yeah, and he explores those themes in a contemporary setting. Contemporary for 1991, that is, in his film City of Hope. Progress. 
City of Hope is a study of the widespread corruption in an unnamed American city, much of it surrounding the demolishing of low-income housing to make way for commercial development property. Among its many characters, we follow the contractor's son, played by Vincent Spano, as he tries to make his own moves out of his father's shadow. Another key player is Joe Morton's city councilman, who faces an ethical dilemma in the complex racial politics of the city. These last couple of years or decade have been considered as a golden age of television because these TV shows have not been allowed to breathe and explore all these themes that they had not addressed before. And even among these titans of TV, one show still stands above all, The Wire. And what made The Wire such a great series is how it uses one season to show the police, but then in the next season, showing the city council for another, showing the workers, and then in the magnificent fourth season, showing people in the school system. I caught City of Hope after I had seen a couple of episodes of The Wire, so... I was blown away by a film that has such a comprehensive look of all the moving parts of what keeps a city in operation in the form of a two-hour movie. I find the sales ability to do this stunning to witness. I am in awe of the ambition of this film. And I have such respect for what Sales is trying to do and for the elements of the film where I, where I do think he succeeds. But this actually, I, I think, is a near miss for me mm. because the balancing act that he is going to perfect a couple movies from now, and that you describe in The Wire, which in fairness had the time of a long-running TV show to explore, is put together in a way that I don't think has the flow of, say, Eight Men Out's large ensemble. We are introduced to a lot of different characters from a lot of different places in in this city's uh, diorama and some really work but uh, for me some did not some of the portraits were more like sketches to me that didn't really go anywhere Th there's a lot of different plots happening but two main ones and I think one is significantly better than the other. Hmm. The one that doesn't work so well for me, uh, I'm afraid, once again, involves Vincent Spano, who 
I have to say, John Sayles seems to have a pattern of working with these great actors over and over again. So his uh, continuation of, of working with Vincent Spanow really kind of confuses me. Uh, <laughs> and he's really the character we spend the, the most time with in the film. And while he certainly does better than he did in Baby It's You... He didn't give me a lot of motivation to follow him. There's so much fascinating stuff going on around him, yet we continue to go back to his take on his relationship with his father, with uh, the criminal elements of the city, and uh, his courtship in that environment, and Spanow is not holding that together for me. On the other hand, there is another really strong thread with uh, Joe Morton as uh, the city councilman that I think knocks it out of the park. Everything having to do with uh, the, these two kids in, in a moment of rage just start beating on this jogger. And when they're caught, in order to protect themselves, they claim that he was uh, making uh, sexual advances at them. And now Joe Morton's in this position where he has to deal with the, and these are African-American kids, Joe Morton has to deal with the African-American leadership of the city and what this crime means for their community. Morton's struggle here is palpable. And if this film focused on that element, I would have far less reservations about it. But I, I, I do have some when it, when it comes to the Spano uh, plot line. I had seen Spano in City of Hope before I had seen his performance in Baby It's You. And so what really, really struck me when I saw that was how it is the same performance, <laughs> <laughs> the same uh, puppy dog expressions of I like you, you like me, that he uses to romance people, the same you're not the boss of me attitude of walking away from any attempted responsibility even if it was a cushy job where you didn't impose to buy your father the sense of rebellion for ev against everything for its own sake and the lack of any charismatic way of drawing you in on caring what happens to him <laughs> seem evident in both films mm -hmm. it works a lot less effectively in baby it's you because it's not because City of Hope is fortunately not focused entirely on him. And for a quote-unquote lead, it's the percentage of time dedicated to him is very, is, is very low by, by comparison because there's so many other things going on. And I think you're right about how the film doesn't gradually introduce you to this complexity of the world, but dives you right into mm -hmm. it. You're introduced to one character, and he's talking to a second character. Then you follow that second character, he's talking to a third character, and this character talks to a fourth and fifth, and then you see the fifth character talking to the first, and soon it becomes, it becomes this onrush of, whoa, there's so many! But unlike, say, Nashville, where that's a world where uh, it could jump from one to another... And that's just happens to be where the spotlight happens to fall. 
Here, it's this real, I found it exhilarating. I find that this just intricate moving clockwork of all the different aspects that keep a society moving day by day by day. And dumb, puppy dog-eyed workers are one component, but people in the contracting industry, people with connections to the concrete that gets delivered to the construction site, the family issues and the family sense, family issues and the mob family sense, (laughs) political considerations, both in terms of the way that council meetings are run, which is done in a really fascinating way that acknowledges both the compromises that are made before the council meetings even take place and also nicely dovetails with the uh, attitude towards these people who are clearly there on every council meeting and to voice their often odd grievances and the conflict between the official mechanisms of government and then the different activist groups who aim for a sort of purity that Joe Morton's councilman character is finds very very difficult to live up to in this neighborhood that he really wants to support right but it's dealing with such touchy situations because because he works on the city council he's viewed by the african-american activists as being kind of a sellout mm-hmm. and so in order to advance politically and enhance his reputation in his community he feels like he has to compromise on certain things that will be of use to this leadership. Now, on the other hand, he makes it a point to know the actual situation on the ground and really does care about how different lives are affected. And, and, and it's a great uh, depiction of the balancing act of politics because he's not shown as either some sort of pure idealist yet on the other hand he's not somebody who doesn't care about the lives involved and he wants to think of himself as a incorrupt man but sometimes when corruption is all around you it's pretty tough to be the incorrupt man. Very true. And whereas the look of corruption gets has been modulated throughout the course of Sales' last couple of movies, whereby the corruption of the owners in Madawan is absolute, but the corruption has multiple levels in Eight Men Out, but it's still bad. But here, corruption becomes a sense that, to a certain level, it's sort of necessary and it's the norm. It's not the exception. Right, right. But then also it's not treated as just an absolute demerit either. It's also possible that a little corruption may be exactly what's necessary at a certain point to help things go. And that's part of a, an arc that Morton's character goes through in a really interesting way. And this is something that I think even more than any of, of his films, even Madawan, Sales is showing a dedication of giving an articulation to everybody's position. From corrupt businessmen to honest businessmen. Council members who've been compromised to want to be honest council people. Even the mob boss himself in a very cute cameo by Lawrence Tierney 
he has his own explanation for why things must behave the way they do. This is a point where sales starts to reach towards this idea of people not being caricatures of good and evil, but whose motivations stem from one of the great statements done by John Renoir in his film, The Rules of the Game, which is everyone has their reasons. And sales gives a, shines a light on those reasons and illuminates them and puts them in the context of everyone trying to make the city work for them. I do want to call out in, in the Vincent Spanow storyline, there is a really strong performance, which is Tony LaBianco as Spano's father, who's a contractor on the building. It's made clear to him by various unsavory elements that it would be better for everyone, especially him and his family, if the housing project were to burn down. So where Joe Morton's uh, city councilman is dealing with this kind of white-collar set of ethical issues, Lobianco is... As Torn, he doesn't want anyone to be hurt, but he is chin deep in this world and struggles with the with his own decision on how far he can go. Mm -hmm. I don't know for what necessarily reason that City of Hope dedicates some time to Vincent Spennell's attempted love life, because... The movie is richer if you consider it that it's La Bianco's story. Mm -hmm. In a way, he has a descent in his stature that's from the same kind of crisis of morals that Joe Morton has in his ascent by the end of, by the end of the movie. Like they're going clearly going in two different directions. Right. <laughs> but whereas it's one person's whose ideals need to be tempered by a little bit of grease in the right direction. It's another person who had those ideals to provide the, the grand American ideals of providing for your family and giving a, a, giving a future for your kids. And it's how those ideas had already been warped and they warped just too far to lead to ruin in a scene that at the end of city of hope is could kind of come across as a little bit manic, but I find fits fits really nicely as a person's just left ranting in the harsh yellow light of help, help, we need help, help, we need help, help, we need help. I think maybe that's a little bit too on the nose. And I have to say that some of the conversations that people have in City of Hope do not match the kind of pure realism that he did so effectively with Liana or Sakaka 7. They're stating these things that they believe in. Mm -hmm. It's not something people say continuously. At least I don't believe that's what people say. <laughs> but the things that they're articulating is stuff that has not been not been expressed in too many uh, police or crime dramas or, or dramas about uh, uh, city activity to this point. And there's such a robust collection of these sentiments that it's still incredibly valuable, refreshing, and interesting to ponder. Yeah, it's it's definitely a movie worth seeing, and I think it might be sales' own 
ridiculously high standards that makes me a little more critical of this one where perhaps if I had uh, seen it under some random director's moniker I would have I would have been much more impressed my criticisms are kind of grading on a curve here mm-hmm. but any movie that takes ethical issues this seriously and has the ambition to create this Altman-esque scope that that sales is trying to do is definitely worth seeing could not agree more his scope is so expansive in this one and in his next film he decides to dial it way way back and tackle yet a completely different subject in his film Passion Fish from 1992. No fight left or so it seems I am a man whose dreams have all deserted I've changed my face I've changed my name But no one wants you when you lose This film stars Mary McDonnell as a soap opera star left paralyzed after a traffic accident who returns to her family home in Louisiana. In need of caregivers, McDonnell's anger and drinking drives a number of nurses away until the arrival of Alfred Woodard, with whom she forms a bond as well with an unusual friendship, which the movie explores. So the outline story here is potentially the stuff of melodrama. It's potentially the stuff of TV movies. If you just talk about what happens in the film, it doesn't give the film the credit that it's deserved through the sheer power of its filmmaking. The acting from Mary McDonald and Alfre Woodard are spot on. They are rich in characterizations. Each of these characters has their problem, but they also have this interior life that the actresses are constantly able to to convey. The film is gorgeous, set in uh, Louisiana. This one is is shot by Roger Deakins, who recently won an Oscar for the Blade Runner sequel. The script is sharp. It takes things that could easily be cliche and makes them fresh. You're so right on the idea of the internal characterizations of these two main performances. McDonald is just superb in this one as someone who, in her desire to get out of that town she grew up in, has then subsumed a larger-than-life persona with larger-than-life expectations towards how people need to behave Mm. around her. She delivers a very strong will towards having things be done her way. And then when Woodard comes in, it's just a great battle of wills on there, but for two different reasons. Because I feel that, like, 
Woodard has a lot of internal feelings of falling short, but McDonald is someone who, if she felt that way, it's been so long subsumed mm-hmm. by a big layers and layers of entitled behavior and self-regard and ego. So there's something that McDonald needs, but I don't, one of the things that I think the movie is really cool about is that she doesn't realize she needs it until that exterior gets broken down by this person whose need to succeed is a lot more closer to a feeling of void on the surface. Right. Part of the dynamism uh, in distinguishing the two characters is that we get a lot from McDonald right up front. We have her dealing with becoming a paraplegic, her background as a soap opera star, and we sense that there's all, probably before the accident, been this sense of privilege that uh, yes. that, that she's Im- embodied. We don't find out really what's going on with Woodard's character until almost the very end. So she's very enigmatic. The character goes through any number of nurses before uh, Alfred Woodard shows up and, and just shows how each of them cannot handle the high maintenance-ness of this right. woman and the way she treats people. It reminds yeah. mm-hmm. me a little bit of all the different girlfriends that Harold has to deal with in Harold and ah. for some weird way. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> because it's really funny at times. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the movie... Uh, like all sales films, when, when it needs to, it can be very funny, even when dealing with tragic situations. Uh, again, just the hallmark of great writing. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And it provides for an opening up of these characters, both in in how they um, in how they have these internal cri- inter- internal crises that they're dealing with, but also in the sense of new opportunities. I particularly enjoy. A appearance from David Strafarin playing a character who, while married, has a certain level of affection towards McDonald's character. And it leads to a really fun transition dream sequence where she is with him with the use of her legs. Mm-hmm. Strafarin is a very, is a great secret ingredient of a sales movie because. He has a unique presence, and here is sort of an expansion, a more complex version of his Ronnie character from the Sakaka 7. And also kind of a preview of what's going to be his first starring role for sales that we'll talk about a little later. There are uh, similar some similarities uh, in this character. But but yes, the, I I don't think we can talk too much about the qualities that that David Strathairn uh, brings even to small roles, and, and it was right there in uh, Secaucus Seven, and it's authenticity. It's just the the idea that this is an actor who is consistently real and, and believable playing all sorts of, of characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He provides a great combination of how certain actors are known by become, being able to do great performances. They deliver what the script is. Certain actors are well known for being presenting a certain vibe in their performance. Some sort of sense that you know it's that particular actor doing it where another actor wouldn't. And Strathairn does both. 
because he like I agree with you. He's very very honest in his depictions of the characters that he plays, but it's also uniquely himself. Could another person do just as good a job of what he does in films like Passion Fish, Sakaka Seven, perhaps? But they wouldn't be his performances, and you, I think you get a sense of that. Very true. But and he also doesn't, in any way, steal the spotlight from the the two leads. They are consistently our focus. There's this acting chemistry going on between Woodard and and McDonald that is so watchable and so intriguing because it really upends the idea of the employer-employee relationship. Certainly, uh, McDonald's character could fire her nurse at any time, but she realizes that there is legitimacy and there is real caring and affection from uh, where uh, Woodard is coming from. And she is such a mess of a character. She is so destroyed by not only the accident, but the alcoholism she faces and her inability to relate to people that she allows this person further into her life than we sense this character generally would be willing to allow anybody. Right. And the film also is really effective at showing how McDonald's character is caught between uh, the social version of a rock in a hard place. The, the rock being the hometown of small minded individuals and the hard place of her soap opera compatriots. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you going to find relief or um, uh, satisfaction among these two options? Right, right. She she does not like to receive visitors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think you're also onto something of how it there is this particular formula about how the main character gets enlightened by the uh, usual minor usually a minority person who helps the Uh, main character, Mm. understand what life is really all about. But this is undercut to a great degree in this film by making these these two main characters equals both in wills, but also in the complexity of what they need from each other. Right, because here we get into spoiler territory. Uh, Alfre Woodard's character is a former drug addict, and she, in fact, had her daughter... Uh, taken away from her and being raised by her father because she was so out of control at a certain point of her life. So once we find this out, that gives us the information to fill in all these uh, subtle elements that Woodard's been bringing to her performance Mm -hmm. on how she's not just there to benefit the other character. She is there because she has a great need herself that this relationship can fulfill. Exactly. This is one why Passion Fish is one of these films that you should see, and then you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it, and then you immediately should watch it again <laughs> because it's all there. The particular way she reacts is all coming from details that you will know about later 
the first time you see the movie. So there's a case where the second movie becomes that much richer from what you find out the first time you view it. So sales continues to be on a roll, and uh, we'll see if that continues with what might be his least sales movie yet. The Secret of Rowan Inish, released in 1994, is a fairy tale inspired by old Irish folklore of the magical qualities of seals and those who can also appear as humans called selkies. Fiona is a young girl who moved from the city to a small fishing village to live with her grandparents. As she's welcomed by the seals, she becomes fascinated by the stories of her own family bonds with the mysterious creatures. Yeah, this is a really interesting film of sale of sales is for a number of reasons. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about how non-salesian it is, because there's two things here, which I think have showed up on sales's mind, but they sort of show up in the purest form. I think since he made Brother from Another Planet, Sales has always has had an increased appreciation of the sense of a, of a place, of the values of a certain place, the the coal mining hills of Madawan, all the intricate machinations of the city and City of Hope, and the and the bayou, the swampy bayou of Passionfish. Mm-hmm. Here, I think it's in his. It's one of its most purest forms in uh, uh, John Ford himself, I have to say, would be hard-pressed to show a kind of adoration of this landscape that is shown in Roninish, despite the fact that it actually is not very welcoming in a lot of cases at all. But it is romantic as hell. Well, he's brought Haxel Wexler back, ah, whose depictions of these islands, of the sea of this small town life is absolutely gorgeous. What I think is very unusual about it is its use of magical realism, Mm -hmm. which is something that uh, sales doesn't really traffic in. Even brother from another planet had a very different vibe in how it dealt with its fantastical elements. True. But he's made a children's film. And I, I mean that in the best possible sense, kind of like Whale Rider, which would uh, oh, come good, in good the, the next in the next decade. It's really one of these movies about children that just works on the level of the child's point of view, and is just as effective as for those of us who are no longer children. Because if you can create a scene where we can believe that these seals have formed a bond with this community. If you could make us buy that, 
you've got a hell of a movie going on, and I think he succeeded there. Mm-hmm. I I agree with you on that. The films that that I compare this to, it would be a film that came out a couple of years ago called Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yes, something that did so well from the child's perspective while also making us as um, adults more aware of the squalor that that this child is having her dreams exist in. And, it, uh, and I'll give the movie some, I believe, some fairly high praise by saying it works in some of the similar territory of some of the work of Hiyako Miyazaki. Hmm. Some of those ways that, like, the, the whimsy can tie in with like real world concerns that have been that for example have shown themselves in uh, spirited away to take one example well the best children's movies all have a dark side and this one does too because when you set up with your premise is that a young baby in its in his basket has floated away at sea presumably to his death that's a dark place to start now right. the movie doesn't end with that it has a more fanciful resolution of that situation but the fact that it's not willing to talk down to kids as far as subject matter and jenny courtney who plays uh, fiona despite being a small child really does hold the center of this film because she has the sense of wonder and and she believes. So when she ends up on this boat and floats out to the, the magical Island where, uh, where the seals are now the only residents left, she assesses the situation. She realizes what needs to be done before anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vincent Spano could learn some lessons <laughs> from, from young Jenny Courtney and to how to captivate people all by yourself mm-hmm. just reacting against nature and and the grandparents are a hoot too these great irish uh, character actors mm-hmm. all embodying the the old world including all the superstition that's a part of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah maybe it's because we had such an interesting exploration of the works of john ford in an earlier podcast but i really have a different appreciation for Inish in the con- in the as a comparison with how Ford looks at the ideas of myths. Mm-hmm. We see the seeds of this being a concern of John Sayles in this film. I think we get our first start of the idea of what values do people have in this in the world they live in. Part of it is the stories and the tales yes. that they tell themselves and the kind of values that you get out of the legends that you have and the legends that you pass on to subsequent generations. I think that's a Fordian sentiment or very similar to a Fordian sentiment that shows up in a great magical, realistic way through the eyes of this child, through Roan Inish. So it's a sort of a sideways look at things that have concerned sales but done in such a completely different venue. I mean, this is a guy who just took a lifetime melodrama and made it his own, just the previous movie, and now he's taking a kid's movie <laughs> and making it his own in this one. Right. And, and we're, we're at a point in his career where he does have some budget, yeah. uh, unlike earlier on, and really unlike where he's going to end up la- later on. 
this decade uh, of the last couple films and the next couple films we'll be exploring are kind of his height as a Hollywood player, but he doesn't lose the indie mentality. He has such a wide variety of interests. This, this project shows his versatility and, and just how large his sets of interests are. Yes, that's a great point. Because sometimes some directors, they may have great concepts, inspired concepts that the world has never seen before. But they take those concepts and they run with them so far that they leave a lot of humanity behind. <coughs> Kubrick, <coughs> Christopher <laughs> Nolan, <coughs> James Cameron. <laughs> it happens actually quite often, now that you think about it, right? When sometimes when a person does get a level of creative freedom, they let their own ideas, their own impulses. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the astounding things about sales, that he doesn't do that. He always always wants to honor the situation and the people who inhabit the situation. When he was writing characters for his stories, he, he has said in interviews that what he likes to do is he quote-unquote plays every role that he's written as if it's an actor who's just getting this, who's getting this job and who's a human being who wants to inhabit this character that is written and wants to think of the motivations and say, what's going to be interesting about to play this role? And this dedication is given to even the most minor characters in the magical in the magical realist fa fable mm -hmm. of of Inish, and it's amazing to see someone be so grounded in these attempts to be accessible and honest, and having these vast feats of imagination. He realizes that different tools are needed for different jobs. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why when you watch his, his body of work, I'd actually compare him to Sidney Lumet in, in this way, in, in, mm. in the sense that he's an auteur who at times doesn't appear like an auteur because his movies are so different from each other. There are some visual touches that, that sales likes to use like a, uh, slow fade to black mm -hmm. and, and fade back. But this movie looks like no other movie he's done. True. Because among other things, it's in films of his that have been so populated with people mm -hmm. and he's, his ability to manage, like these long tracking shots where 15 different people are moving in from one side or another, like in a sequence from eight men out, which is, could be the, could be the French bedroom farce of corruption, for right. example. <laughs> but here so much is dedicated about people being alone. Right. Which may have been something that coming off passion fish, he might've wanted to continue to explore right? this idea of uh, more of a, a chamber piece. Right. And the idea of someone's internal internal life as compared to the situation that they find themselves in, maybe it's a kind of paralysis in an economic way for the, for the grandparents and the child that, that McDonald finds himself in a literal paralysis mm. in passion fish. Yeah. Maybe that might be an interesting way of looking at it, but whichever way you do look at it, he's, he still wants to go right by the characters and go right by the place that the characters represent in the story. And by the script, because a, another way he's a bit of an anomaly is that so many 
actor-oriented directors, people like uh, Robert Altman or John Cassavetes or Mike Lay, utilize improvisation very freely mm-hmm. and sales does not sales probably very much because he's also the screenwriter right believes in the uh, authority of the script that is written mm-hmm. it's uh, right it's a very fascinating way of comparing how his characters just get developed through his writing and they manage to be nicely complex in the way of how say a Mike Lay does things through constant improvisation that then leads to a scripted piece but whereas those were a result of these collaborations where where everyone actors are giving their input the fact that sales manages to meet your level of success by effectively writing those characters himself and being so effective at like from having all the different characters in Sakaka 7 which may have been his friends but also then in his portrayal of a lesbian experience in Liana. He's he's really a master on a screenwriting craft. And we're saying all this before we've even begun to talk about what may be his masterpiece. Yes, and that very well could be his film Lone Star from badge and a skull are found in the desert near a town by the Mexican border. Sheriff Sam Deeds, living in the shadow of his legendary lawman father, commences a search to find out what happened, a search which leads through many of the cultures, ethnicities, and generations of the town's residents. Now, our very special guest, Jim, has some impressions of his own to share with you guys about Lone Star. So uh, once again, here's Jim. Hey, it's Jim here. I'm back. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about Lone Star because I have an interesting relationship with Lone Star. I heard raves from Siskel and Ebert um, back when it was first released. And I think I, I think it did. Yeah, it must have opened up in Northwest Indiana, where I was living at the time. Hearing raves from critics is enough to get me and my best friend to the theater. And strangely enough, we were not happy when we sat down. And about fifteen to twenty minutes in, we're just we could not be more bored. I mean, we were teenagers that wanted something like Pulp Fiction or. Natural Born Killers, maybe, at the time. So we actually left. We, we left due to boredom, which is crazy, uh, because as an adult, I rewatched it and com- was completely blindsided and blown away. And to this day, well, I've seen, it, I've seen it three times now, and upon third viewing, I feel it is a perfect, perfect movie. I mean, can you count how many incredible themes this movie has, like history versus propaganda, um, in the in the classroom, uh, 
strife between different cultures, the whole mystery of the skull, but buried in the desert. That's a good hook. Uh, expectations of living up to the accomplishments of previous generations, fathers and sons, uh, relationship struggles, all these things interweave. And then ultimate revelations that ensue aren't like, <gasps> like aren't draw jaw-dropping, um, dramatic, like devices that are, are designed to make you f- freak out or something. They're, they're, they're human revelations. It, it just comes together seamlessly. And if you think about it, it seems a little influenced by one false move. And again, I'm biased just because I just saw it and, and saw Carl Franklin talk about it. But if you think of the specific tension and transgressions between the characters in one false move and the fact that there's a history, including a, a romantic one at that between two main characters, I mean, that's kind of writing 101, but at the same time, and again, One False Move is in the present tense, but Lone Star has a brilliant narrative and flashback structure. I just think there's a, there's a reason why they're two of my very favorite films, and I feel that they're perfect. They tell simple stories about complex human beings and not once forget their humanity, their mistakes, and the possibilities that could exist if these people could just get past their um, their issues and their hang-ups and the competition surrounding these uh, these characters is pretty remarkable and very similar to the kind that you see in um, in City of Hope. Now, there's a there's a line between two people in Lone Star that say different variations of "I understand why you would think that," and that to me is like kind of the lightning bolt moment of why I love sales because he's he's attempting to understand his characters and they're attempting to understand one another. And even if they're two completely different people, you understand them. And that's a writer that cares about writing and the arc of a character in a compelling way through and through. I'll come back and talk about one more limbo in a bit. But th- those are my thoughts on Lone Star. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of what Jim has to say on Lone Star in, that he just mentioned, but I'm going to go further because for me, John Sales's Lone Star is the third greatest film of all time. Wow, that is quite the statement. Just for, for uh, perspective, what are the top two for you? Number two would be John Renoir's Rules of the Game. And number one would be Kubrick's 2001. All right. Now, this is obviously, it's a really big statement to go and say that this film is better than Ikiru, better than Citizen Kane, better than Lawrence of Arabia, better than Baby It's You. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's a big, it's a big statement. So why would I, why would I, Put it that way. Why would I? Why would I give it such a high regard? One reason is that, like as to what Jim was saying, is that this is one of the rare movies that I find is a perfect movie. Sometimes you have movies that are magnificent, epic, spectacular, and are some of the greatest films, but they they fall short in this area or this area to do what the movie aims to do. 
And Lone Star, to me, never falters. From the opening image of the secrets being unearthed to a final line that I put at the level of nobody's perfect from someone like it hot, maybe even better, every atom of the celluloid used to make this picture is a perfect fit with what John Sayles was trying to do. Every lighting choice, choice in performance, camera move, choice to depict the different places and the different times that the story gets set. They all fit. They all flow like the Rio Grande and they all work. Another reason about that is that for these highfalutin claims of perfection, it is also phenomenally accessible. It goes and looks at these ideas, but delivers it through a story that can be entertaining and can draw you in without needing to require any sort of ideas on film theory or really thinking about, wait, what am I looking at here? No, there's a great through line on here that, that, let, that can lead you along to these ideas. And you pick up on these themes through following the central mystery of it. And thirdly... This film, Central Mystery, hinges on the idea of its location near the Mexican border because this is be, transcends it to become a film about borders. Borders of all kinds and the meanings of the borders that we use to define ourselves and that we use to divide ourselves. That's the general thing for how I think about it. Uh, what's your impressions on the film, Brad? Well, on the other hand, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. It's fucking brilliant. You're absolutely right. I love the hell out of this movie. It's, it's also my favorite sales movie. And uh, I'll just start with one of those connections that, that you alluded to, which for me is an amazing achievement is that it has two general themes. It has the story of the characters, which are basically stories of parents and their adult children. Mm. Most notably is uh, Chris Cooper's uh, sheriff and his now deceased sheriff father, who he is having to live up to this name. Other characters echo parent-child relationships as well, and, and they're complicated. The other thing that Lone Star is interested in is its political themes. Lone Star succeeds at what Paul Haggis's movie Crash failed at. The idea mm. that we can understand race relations, ethnicities, religions, all the things that, that, that divide us, that we could kind of understand our differences by seeing what happens when people of different backgrounds are put into the same pot, so to speak. 
in this case, the political point is made very subtly through the characterizations because it's talking about, and this is where it uh, we have some commonality with Altman's Nashville, hmm. is it's talking about America. In this case, it's talking about the past versus the present of America. And it doesn't try to simplify it at all, but it, it's really yes. interesting how, how the film has this relationship from the Chris Christopherson character and his brutality through the kind of questionable methods that uh, Chris Cooper's father uh, employs to Cooper's own search for a place for, for people to be. It's an evolution of the characters, but it's also an evolution of how we as a society can function and move forward as a country, recognizing the horrors of the past and trying not to repeat them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the many amazing features is the look of the generational shift about the the three different sheriffs. In a way, they may... Right now, I'm thinking there are three different ways of how you define themselves in the West that have a similarity to the three different ways that main characters from the Coen brothers, No Country for Old Men, used to define themselves. How does the West get, quote-unquote, one, right? First, it's one through brutality. Then there's a way of making sure you and your group is on top, but that everyone gets a share. And Cooper is at a point where, well, now everyone's perspective has value and everyone's perspective should be considered, which is a great positive. But on the other hand, it does lead you to not have the kind of sense of direction that even that his father had. It's also really phenomenal upon how how you're not just defining yourself, but you're defining the community. Mm -hmm. The community so under the thumb of Chris Christopherson, who in a very, his appearance in this film is brief, but he makes an impression. The sense of charisma that would give him such an iron hold of this town is made very evident, which then gets blown out of the water by this incandescent firecracker of a performance of a young Matthew McConaughey as Buddy Deeds. Such a calmness, but such an absolute position of steel that he's able to stare down the Christopherson's character. And, and it should be pointed out that this is pre-stardom Matthew McConaughey. That's right. And he had a little bit of years in the wilderness doing rom-coms and so on, but due to his performances in Days of Confused and his three or four minute appearance in Lone Star, he was posted as a, mag as a magazine idol as the hot up-and-coming star. And when you see him in Lone Star, you understand completely why. He lights up the screen. But apart from that, it's completely necessary to the story because Cooper has a lot of things going on in his mind as he goes on this search to find out who killed the person in the desert. And part of which is that his father cast a legendary shadow 
but on top of his larger-than-life presence, the film explores on a societal way, looking at a City Hope-like comprehensive look upon what's the value of corruption versus your imposition of will, but it's doing the similar thing to the message of John Ford's film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. These people are considered legends, mm-hmm. and your all and Cooper's quest is almost to slay in a way the legend. But then when he finds out what's made his father's actions so legendary, is something he would have never expected. Yes, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance also came into my mind as I was watching uh, Lone Star and the the famous print the legend quote mm-hmm. could very easily be applied to the the monument to uh, buddy deeds that the the town wa- wants to put up i want to talk about a amazing visual feature to the film that that brings all these themes together in a filmmaking way which is how it transitions in and out of flashbacks because what we're generally used to is a flashback will come after a fade or some other uh, transition but what sales does is he doesn't cut he goes into usually uh, some kind of a close-up of on a face or an object and then pans back to reveal that we've just moved from the 1990s to uh, to the 1950s without a cut. And A, it looks great. It's an original way to film it, and it, it, it's striking. But B, it fits in with the theme, because what's it saying? That the past and the present, there's not a fine dividing line. They blur together. No matter how much you think you have gotten beyond the past, it's always there haunting you. And yes. and sales makes this clear in the story and the script and what happens. But then to make it clear in his visual strategy is brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best short visual cinematic shorthands to express that kind of statement about the past and present intermingling than to have a face or a or a house or the Rio Grande itself be just a pan from one era to another so that the, like you said the divisions are divisions are not nearly as stark and that's something that is very much on the mind on this film because there is so many divisions to be had because these the cultures are as full and effectively thought out, maybe more so than the cultures in as the workers for Madawan. Mm-hmm. However, with the exception of Christofferson's character, there is no villain to be had, and everyone has an equal claim or an equal argument to go and uh, say... Who gets to write the history? Mm -hmm. This is something that Sales was considering in Roan Inish. And whereas it was a given in Madawan, here it's apparent that the victor, to what extent you define it, is someone who gets to write the history of this town. And it is a concern of people to print whichever legend Mm -hmm. fits their group. Right. And 
We've talked about Chris Cooper's lineage and his arc, but I want to also mention the other two sets of parents and children. Joe Morton is a strict, by-the-book army colonel. This is an army town, and his father owns uh, the bar where the soldiers congregate, and in flashback, had uh, gone face-to-face and had to deal with Chris Christopherson's uh, sadism. Morton's character also has his own son, who he has trouble relating to. And so we explore that relationship. And then Elizabeth Pena, her mother, is a big muckety-muck in the Mexican-American business community and has a interesting relation with uh, border crossings. But what all these fathers and mothers have in common is they are larger than life and their children have to struggle with that. And, and it's so interesting to see because the, the, the level of acting could not be higher all around. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to see how all these characters relate to these family issues. Going back to Chris Cooper, we gave him praise for, for his role in Matewan, but he has a, a quiet authority in this movie that is even stronger. In Matewan, uh, his character is more goal-oriented. Here, he's far more interested in in discovering. So there's an, a, an internalness to Chris Cooper's performance that, that's really fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you're going to disagree because Nashville is your favorite movie, but I th honestly think this is what puts Lone Star over on Nashville because they are both trafficking in the <laughs> same idea of America. But whereas in Nashville, you've got to give yourself as an audience member to look mm -hmm. at what... And of course, it's hugely rewarding when you do that. But Cooper gives even the most casual viewer and in towards exploring just to see what the solution of the mystery is but as the movie goes on the mystery becomes bigger and bigger and your appreciation of the complexity of what the answer the answer is becomes greater and greater but you have such a great iron core with chris cooper's presence mm -hmm. because he's so wonderfully stoic in just wanting to find out the answers and well, related to the legends of the past. Well, I do hope you'll all get a chance to listen to our Robert Altman podcast, uh, <laughs> where we talk about Nashville in, in great detail, but I think the films complement each other because mm -hmm. when you say you're going to make a film about America, generally you can't. It's yeah. too vast a subject. It's too complicated a subject with too many traps and things that, that if, if you're not working at the very highest level of filmmaking, you can discuss an aspect of it. You could discuss the Civil War or uh, the labor movement or, or some aspect, but there are very few films that really, I think, can claim to be about what America has been and, and, and will become. I think Nashville is, is one of those films. I think Lone Star is another. Mm -hmm. The characterizations on Lone Star is a wonder to behold because you could take these families 
And I would say you could take the characters, the members of each family, and I swear every single one is such an interesting and complex character that you feel has such a potentially fascinating backstory that you could literally just follow this character or that character, and they could be in a compelling movie all on their own. Mm -hmm. And there's like 10 to 15 such characters (laughs) in Lone Star. And sometimes movies can have great scenes and great moments. I think Lone Star has those, but Lone Star also works because... Those moments all work within each other. They work within the structure of the mystery and they build. They build and they build. And like how Tarkovsky, Andrew Tarkovsky, the Russian filmmaker, said that he wants to make movies that sculpt in time. Sales, I feel, sculpts a message in time. There's a momentum and an increased feeling that you get built upon more and more, the deeper and deeper. You get into this mystery, the deeper and deeper that these characters from all these different walks of life interact with each other to give us a bigger and bigger appreciation of the complex tapestry that is America and right. its, the, its promises. And at the same time, it does all these things, but it also functions great as as a genre film mm-hmm. you do have the the mysterious elements when a skeleton is found in the desert yeah. and this sheriff star is identified that is a classic mystery opening yes you have because of the setting a lot of elements that look like a western we discussed the 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 liberty valence connection i don't i don't think that's an accident Mm. and then you have this wonderfully sweet romance that blossoms between uh chris cooper and elizabeth pena's character uh a romance that started uh when they were children but their parents were extremely eager to keep them apart. We, we suspect this might be for racial reasons, but then when they're, they're reunited due to the uh, events of the film, it is one of the sweeter romances we've seen. And for a movie accomplishing so many giant things, it's also impressive that it gets the little things right. Exactly. And part of the ways that it gets a little, those little things right is that this is John Sayles' most varied movie in terms of his visual direction. There's, as Cooper goes on his quest, all the different places that he goes to and the people that he talked to are depicted in a different way visually. Mm-hmm. And Sayles is pulling in every technique he could know how to try and uh, show the different parts of this guy's journey. Like whether it's a, whether it's a situation at a military base, at, a, at the bar to just a a great superimposition montage of Chris Cooper looking into documents to a, to tying in on the romance angle. There's a really lovely scene where he's riding alone. Cooper is riding alone at night with this great song playing on the background and just the occasional red or blue light Mm -hmm. infuses his face as he's continuing on his journey. 
which ties in, which is another value on the system, is the, the, the way it looks at all the different cultures is reflected in the music, too. This is one of the great soundtracks that has yes. ev- so many different styles of music get played in this, in this film. We need to talk about something that, that we've been mentioning, but I, I think needs an extra underlining here, is John Sayles is the only white director that I could think of who is this interested in consistently exploring minority communities. Mm. In this case, we're exploring the lives of uh, Anglos, of Mexican and Mexican Americans and of African Americans. And it's all done with, such a sense of empathy and such a sense of recognizing the complexities of the back. It's it's not trying to sugarcoat anything in the sense of, well, why can't we all just get along? There's none of that going on. Mm -hmm. Everybody's cultural background tragedies is recognized. And that's something that is not just happening in Lone Star. It's something Sales is working on throughout his filmography ever since Brother from Another Planet. Mm -hmm. But I think it's never more powerful than in Lone Star. Yeah. This is something that the movie does over and over and over again to, like you said, truly value the conflicts that people have and the difficulties people have and it looks at that nature of borders and who defines them and why you define them and it transcends them because as the mystery gets deeper and deeper you get underneath all these motivations for borders to go and connect to a sense of common humanity that I have not seen in any other movie with one exception, Renoir's Rules of the Game. Mm-hmm. Renoir's Rules of the Game is about, a statement made in Rules of the Game is about how everybody has their reasons. And Lone Star works to similar, ter- similar territory. Everyone has their reasons, and but they are their reasons. And... It is a testament to the grand humanism of both films that they make us appreciate the reasons that people have for doing the things they do and how ultimately we're all human and we all have this need to connect and be whether it's a community or romantic partnership or even it's a connection to our past. It's all a function of people connecting to one another. Before we wrap up the Lone Star discussion, I want to give a a, a spoiler warning for the very end of the film. And I would definitely suggest that if you intend to watch this film, you do so before hearing this next bit, because it takes the concepts we've been talking about even further. It has to do with the relationship between Chris Cooper and Elizabeth Pena's character. And what we end up finding out is that their parents are not so adamant about their not being together because of any racial issues, but 
because it turns out that unbeknownst to the characters, Buddy Deeds is in fact the father of both sides of this uh, romance. We find out through flashbacks that uh, he had a relationship with Elizabeth Pena's mother, and uh, so they have great reason to not want to see these two become a couple. And that hits even further home, this concept of the past intruding on the present. Because here is this wonderful love story, these two people who are, are compatible in every way, but because of something from their past that they have no control of, their relationship is in question. It is something that would, would not be approved of by uh, e- even the, the most liberal-minded of the general public. Mm-hmm. Exactly. As if this movie was not already in the stratosphere. That final twist of the ideas that this movie has been presenting all along just takes it to a whole other level. You can take those ideas of the borders that divide people through their race, through their culture, through being military or non-military, through being part of this group or that group, and it's safe from certain liberal perspectives to say, of course, people should be together. And all through the course of this film, you were thinking that the thing that was dividing these, keeping these couple apart was racism or racial prejudice, let's put it that way. And you know, as when you're watching, that that's, that that's wrong, that's, that's, that that's not fair, that it's not the, something that these people had control over, and their chemistry and their love for each other is so potent and obvious in this film that you are very much made aware of how unfair it is to have these guys denied this connection because of this border. And then Sales gives you another one. One we are not comfortable crossing quite yet. And it asks the question for us, well, here's a border that you don't, don't like. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about that? That's astounding to literally say that this is just might be another arbitrary imposition. Keep in mind that films like such as Liana were revolutionary in their time because people thought that that behavior was an aberration. In fact, I believe that the psychology manual still considered homosexuality was an example of abnormal behavior, which could Mm -hmm. get you locked into a sanitarium. Right. That was an attitude to present that as a perfect example of human expression was revolutionary. And sales at the end of Lone Star gives us that feeling. But we know how they answer it. Right. Because they give themselves a little bit of an out because Pena makes clear that she can't have children. So Mm -hmm. that takes away one aspect of the taboo. Right. I'm just going to say on my perspective, that is pretty much completely what makes it taboo is because the children would have an increased rate of birth defects was why, why that kind of relationship is considered such a, such a taboo. 
But if that is taken away, and it's and it's guaranteed that they won't have children, then where is the border? It's one thing to have borders that we know are wrong mm-hmm. to divide people, but it's another to ask us for a border that we haven't, that we're not comfortable with. It's a similar way, bracing way, about like how, in a different context of how Kubrick's made light of nuclear annihilation as hmm. a comedy in Dr. Strangel. It's a funny movie today, but back then when we really were at risk for being annihilated, how much crazier and how much more bracing is that? And Lone Star's message at the end is bracing even today. And while you or I may have a different question as to whether we could pursue, we are left completely clear as to what the characters at the end of Lone Star do, because they've used as an example of the Alamo. It's the Alamo, the Alamo, this big monument. It's a big monument, and the part of the concern of the movie is how you get a monument to say a monument to Buddy Deeds. So it concludes with them saying, "If I met you today, I'd want to be with you." So we'll start from scratch. Yeah, forget the Alamo. Not to remember the Alamo. Forget the Alamo which is every bit as an inspired message of accepting people and their feelings for what they are as nobody's perfect is to some like it hot, but giving it such a grander concept for society and America, which makes why I consider Lone Star the third greatest achievement I've ever seen that a picture can do. It is magnificent. And how do you follow up? such an achievement well you just do because john sales makes movies the next film he made uh we're not going to go into detail about except i just want to make the point that men with guns is a film he made that was all spanish language yes and features a series of great performances from spanish-speaking actors as they lead a multifaceted look on a harrowing lawlessness in the places they transverse in a way that is a kind of echo to some of the themes on Lone Star, but given of different context just by the use of the, of the different language. But the next film we are going to discuss is a completely different animal altogether. Limbo, released in 1999 and set in Alaska, stars Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as a singer coping with a series of bad breakups and a dysfunctional relationship with her teenage daughter. David Strathairam is a handyman and former fisherman escaping tragic events of his past. As their relationship blossoms, a seemingly straightforward rendezvous on a boat in the wilderness strands the couple and their daughter, who must now struggle to survive. Limbo is such a fascinating title for this movie, because one of the amazing things I think about it is that it both describes where the characters end up, but also implies they might be there already. Mm -hmm. In the first place, so many of his other films have had this sense of direction or momentum, but this film is 
something I think is amazing. It's sales at his most, because it's sales at his most self-reflective. I would even go so far as to say it's him at his most contemplative. Hmm. I might go even farther to say that this is his take on a Tarkovsky story, but I won't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my reaction is a l- little more modest than that. I, I like the film quite a bit, and, and one of the main reasons is the way it's structured, which is that it ends up a- as a thriller or ends up in the form of a thriller, but is not really interested in being a thriller. The entire first half of the film, probably even a little longer, is building up uh, their characters, is getting letting us get to know this interesting trio of people. And really, you have three great performances in uh, David Stratherum, who, shockingly enough, this is his first starring role Mm. for sales. Also, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and, as her daughter, Vanessa Martinez, are just excellent. They all have their own needs and wants, and imperfections. And I love that we get to spend all this time with them in their normal life. At the same time, we get to know this town, this Alaska town really well. Sales is great at presenting us with this, these environments. We talked about the desert border town in, in Lone Star, or the mm-hmm. uh, Irish islands and in Rowan Inish. Yeah. And uh, just as vivid is this uh, Alaskan wilderness and, and the life of fishermen. So, yeah, it's really uh, effective once we start to care about their life or death struggle, but it's only as effective as it is because it's been so methodical about setting these characters up. Mm -hmm. There's two sort of halves of the story that get pulled along by a, a thriller plot that sort of connects and raises the stakes and temperature of the film. The first part is meant to show these characters and their loneliness in a society, Mm -hmm. in the world they find themselves in. And the second half has this, once the thriller plot comes into effect and they find themselves in a desolate part of Alaska, which was already fairly desolate to begin with, there all the societal rules are taken away and then becomes a spirit of a Western in this wilderness, because without all the society, what will they make of the three of them together? So this is a film that deals with trauma. And so you have Stratherum's character, who was a fisherman, but got into a boating accident where he was the only one who survived and feels a great deal of guilt about it. Master Antonio is somebody who cannot get past her past breakups and has really poisoned her relationship to her daughter, who, uh, inconveniently enough, has developed a bit of a crush on the Stratherum character. And her daughter is uh, cutting herself, is obviously going through some really 
tough times in her teenage years. So that's all when they're in civilization. So then how do they handle being in a life or death situation in the wilderness and Stratherum there because he has some experience basically becomes very stoic about it. He's like, there are things that need to be done and we have to do it. Uh, but if pushed, he he's not terribly optimistic about their chances. Master Antonio, on the other hand, is in this complete self-denial mode where she's basically saying it'll all just work out it'll all just work out mm -hmm. and you see her daughter kind of struggling between the two points of view of her mother and, and her mother's boyfriend while at the same time coping through this storytelling mechanism that makes up a fascinating point of the film mm -hmm. this is sales that is most conceptual from the title onwards it's so looks so deeply into the psycho, not just the psychology of how these people deal with the, the trauma as you described, but it also expresses it visually. I can't believe I'm going to keep going to the Tarkovsky well, but if you look <laughs> at what his films are about, they're about per people's personal desolation, mm -hmm. although in a much more singularly lonely level. But in Limbo, the characters encounter a dilapidated house. With lots of water, lots of water running around. Mm -hmm. And in this environment, it lives up to their psychological state and the title of the film because it's so still. There's so little action that they are there with their thoughts and their thoughts are allowed to flow. And we see those expressions from the world they have and what they make of the world. And they express their way. How would they get out of this? How do they try to get out of it? It's really interesting when you look at how um, Stratharin uses it through action. Mm -hmm. Action is what he knows. And Mastro Antonio and her daughter use it through creativity and creative expression. That's what they do. And... The feelings of the fables that were done in Ron Inish and the stories told in the history books at the beginning of Lone Star and those tales that were not told about the Matawan Massacre. What drives people to print the legend? I think maybe an ultimate statement about printing legends comes in through what the daughter does over the course of Limbo. Right, which is she finds a diary in the in this house in the wilderness and proceeds to help pass the time and keep everybody sane by reading passages from this uh, young girl who was there before mm -hmm. except and this is a, a bit of a spoiler so be warned we find out that the diary was only a couple pages long and that these stories she has been telling, she has been making up extemporaneously. We, we see in a, in a earlier school scene that she's ex an extremely creative writer. So mm -hmm. she has this skill, mm -hmm. but uh, this is a really cool thematic device because it is connecting with the uh, the past and the present, like in, in Lone Star, mm -hmm. but it also indicates how, that we write our own future. 
Exactly. And uh, on top of that, it's an astonishingly self-reflexive point that sales makes. Isn't it interesting how the first couple pages exist? But what is sales' first movie? With his, his, his own setting, with his friends, mm-hmm. and stories that he had pulled from his own life. Once those stories are done, it actually ties into a little bit to what I said about Errol, the value on Errol Morris is that those Sakaka 7 is sales' first 10 minutes of the stuff he intimately knows about. And everything, you can make the statement that every other movie that sales has made has the dedication of what the, the daughter in Limbo is trying to do. Express her own pain, her own wants by making stories. Part of it is to sort of pass the time maybe, but part of it is also a coping mechanism. Part of it is to survive. And part of it is also the reason why people would survive mm-hmm. to go and have these stories and to pass along what value you think to the story towards others. How stories in books and film can survive to people who make them. Right? Exactly. So, so yeah, so it's sales in a way. Now, I don't, I cannot say if, if John Sales was expressively trying to say, this is what I'm all about, but I think it's there, you know? And well, so this makes it kind of a different dimension to his work. Well, my, my sense is that he's always doing that. Mm. And so I think more than a, rather than a different dimension, I, I would say it's, it's another flavor. Okay. Because the storytelling element has been something that's been so consistent with him. Now, my question for you is how you think it handles its transition into thriller territory and whether uh, you find that as effective as the uh, character building stuff. He's such a masterful writer of different parts of storytelling, one of which is just the characterizations. How he gives such great, creates such great characters and to populate his stories. Another is the concept thing. What is his stories meant to be about? And thirdly is the plot, the sense of what happens next. For Limbo, I think it's an amazing two out of three. (laughs) (laughs) The thriller stuff does not really work that well for me. It seems a little clunky and a little bit of a contrivance to okay. get them to the the wilderness where they need to survive. It's not really established. Things go south in a tone that was not set up earlier in the movie that there was going to be a sense of danger. Mm-hmm. So they mix like oil and water for me a bit. And so... I don't really like how that the menace gets them there. I not really. Well, that being said, I wonder uh, what our friend Jim will have to say on this subject. Oh, Jim. Okay, and now I know I have other thoughts on a, a, a wide variety of sales films too, uh, particularly like Return of the Sakaka Seven and uh, City of Hope. Those two stood out, um, and I caught up with a few titles that felt a little less satisfying. Um, but, I mean, th- Mate Juan, Eight Men Out, I mean, there's just so many uh, great films from this from this director. I hope you guys feel the same. But and, and as much as I love, 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 love City of Hope, my other favorite 
and this might be a surprise, has to be Limbo. Now, about that ending, I'll get to it, or I won't. Uh, I, I, I just have to say that the first hour is pure sales. Like, the anxieties of everyday life, um, people struggling with their jobs, with each other, within family structures. It is kind of par for the course. But in a way that... I mean, this was probably my first sales film that I rented when I was working at a video store and was kind of... Again, I liked it, but I didn't love it. Now I've grown to love it, and it seems like... I don't know if it's an underdog, but it's certainly not one that... Maybe maybe it deserves a proper release, but it's not one that people seem to cite as one of his best. And I certainly feel it is. Uh, it's just... The dynamics between the mother and the daughter and the mother's new love interest played beautifully by David Strathairn is just pitch perfect. Uh, I mean, it it reminds me very similarly of the way Tarantino treats his characters in Jackie Brown. It's just they they exist in full dimension and in ways that really make you feel for them you know, despite knowing that they're not perfect and despite knowing their fate could be doom and gloom, who knows? We don't know. And I think that's kind of the exciting thing about it is, I mean, people will freak out about the ending. I understand. And certainly it, it's a movie that my mom can't stand because of the ending, (laughs) but it becomes a celebration of storytelling and what it's like to not know what the future holds in store, um, either on a grand scale or for these three people. And I think the daughter reading the memoir is, it's not unlike the way people share stories together in Lone Star, only in this time we don't go see these actual actions taking place. We hear them from the daughter's perspective. And there's a reason for that, of course. And instead of a whole town of different personalities that we're building Uh, relationships with there's just three people alone together and we have the simple conflict and fear of these three people and i just adore this movie like it's it's become another favorite of mine um i'm excited for it to get a better proper blu-ray release because i want to show it to people and i want people to experience it in the same way that uh, i mean it's I'm, i'm not putting it on the same level as lone star I think it's just a personal favorite. Now, okay, about that ending, I gotta say that when they look up and see the helicopter, it really feels... Hey, Jim! Jim! Jim, hey! What happened to Jim? What happened to Jim? There's, he just disappeared. I, I guess we'll never know. It, it, it could have gone either way, really. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, but... One of the things I think I love about Limbo is that... It's it is tricky because you're meant to buy into whether they what happens at the end is it one thing happens or another thing happens, but to me I think one of the things that make it a genius level is it's beside the point because all throughout the movie, what is it about feeling lost, not knowing where to go, and by the end of the movie, these three have reached a state of resolution. They feel a sense of purpose of going forward. And 
they don't know what the future is, but the fact that they're willing to face it, to go out and look at the oncoming sound, no matter if it's good or bad, means that they have gone out of limbo and they've, they've won. That's a really good point. I think the ending works so much more if you take it as a work of allegory. If you don't get too caught up with the plot mechanisms, because like you mentioned earlier, they're uh, a, a little forced when compared to the, the naturalism of the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at the inconclusiveness of the film's ending in, like you say, the context of the characters instead of the context of the plot, mm -hmm. it's so much more interesting and effective. Yeah. Some, maybe if things were more abstracted, then it would flow a little, flow a little better as opposed, but I think, and it stumbles a bit in giving us this expectation that we'll know one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that as people go through their lives, they're not going to know one way or the other. And the characters are stuck because they don't. And to get past that is their triumph, no matter what ends up happening plot-wise. Yeah. And so I really did. I enjoyed this film as a whole. I don't think I quite put it at the level that you and Jim have it at, but it seems like there's this wonderful uh, baseline of quality that, that sales always provides us, whether we're talking about classic films like, like Lone Star and Mate Wan <laughs> or more modest films this is a career that is worth exploring. Exactly. I wish we would have more time to delve into his works that he did after Limbo, which, by the way, also manages to be a perfect film for a 1999, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you think about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> but because his subsequent movies also have a great level of quality to them. And I, I'm, I'm sorry we don't get the chance to do it justice, but we should go at least briefly talk in because this is not a, per he has not slacked off in the quality level with his subsequent films. The, he followed up Limbo with Sunshine State in 2002, which is a look at a multifaceted community in Florida. And what he explored so well with the city in City of Hope is done well in the slightly swampy and way too hot environments of Sunshine State of which the environment is very much a primary concern. This is something where he introduces conservation as one of the social issues that he's interested in and features an excellent performance by Edie Falco hmm. as one of a, a, a very grand ensemble. He does an incredibly grand ensemble with his next film, Casa de los Babies, in 2003, which has some sort of like all-star female cast featuring Marsha Gay Harden, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Daryl Hannah, Susan Lynch, Mary Steenburgen, Lily Taylor, Rita Moreno. And this looks at a side of a baby trading practice of people trying to get adoptions uh, south of the border. And they're taking these quote-unquote vacations for that purpose. And so just by virtue of the extensive ensemble alone, it's very well worth a look. Cool. Well, he followed that up with uh, Silver City, which is another one of his films about corruption, uh, in this case in uh, local politics. And uh, there's a little bit of a twist here because uh, people started noticing that as Chris Cooper uh, got a little older, he started playing more villains and started to 
bear a slight resemblance to one George W. Bush. <laughs> so, yeah. so this film is very much centered around uh, Cooper's uh, W imitation. <laughs> Yeah, um, a, a mildly lovable, mildly unlovable buffoon, yes. <laughs> Sales followed that one up by making a film called Honey Dripper in 2007. It stars Danny Glover as the owner of a bar in a small, called a Honey Dripper, in a small rural community in the South in the 1950s. And how he deals with the various regulars and uh, different events of his blues club which not only include people in a nearby sharecropper environment, but one of those people has a magic box. And when it opens up, it's the first, one of the first examples of an electric guitar. Hmm. So it brings this whole sense of the shock of the new into a, a, a what is a, looks like a total Southern environment. It's a very small scale film, but really gives a, a wonderful tactile sense of place to it. And he followed that up by, in 2010, with Amigo, which attains a scope that is even more epic for numerous reasons than in Matawan, because it is about the U.S. invasion of the Philippines in 1900, and is focused upon a mayor of a small town in this, a small town who has to negotiate the American invaders, the Spanish who were there before, including a, including a very uh, duplicious pastor, and the revolutionaries who are hiding out in the jungle, which include members of his own family. And so he has to navigate, <laughs> he has to navigate all these competing interests to just try to keep survival for him and, and his village. And then his last film, uh, that he has made so far is Gopher Sisters in 2013, in which he, looks at a African-American uh, parole officer and a lady in her charge who turns out to have been a high school friend of hers. And they team up to try and find uh, the parole officer's missing child who may have been kidnapped in Mexico. That may sound familiar, but the fact that he's actually kidnapped by Chinese gangsters in Mexico... <laughs> is yet another extra cultural twist. And it's given an even better cultural twist when they hire someone to help them on their quest. And it is a half-blind, mildly obese, and incredibly ornery guy nicknamed the Terminator, played by Edward James Olmos. And so this is uh, one of his more conventional kind of films for sales, uh, the sense of a thriller and a mystery. But even then, he keeps giving us these right turns of, and doesn't present, even in manners of outright villainy, gives a level of appreciation for how the, the humanity underneath. Like there's a really fearsome gangster who interrupts his angry rant at almost his character to see what his elderly mother is listening to on her headphones for, to give what to give one example. So through these films up to the very end, sales is providing just, just an exceptional high level of quality of through his storytelling and through his sense of doing right by the people in his tales and the worlds that they're in and giving us details and nuances and so many great facets on the on these films that from start to finish 
he's amassed amazing record of filmmaking. And as to what's coming up for John Sayles, unfortunately, we don't have any announced directorial projects from him, but he has throughout this time also continued to write films uh, for other directors. And there's a really interesting one he's uh, working on now, which is uh, a sequel to the old spaghetti Western Django. (laughs) This is going to be called uh, Django lives and bears no relation to the uh, Quentin Tarantino Django unchained update. It's going to be starring Franco Nero reprising his role. So how sales Handles the spaghetti western genre. Can't wait to find out. I exactly. I can't. I can't wait to see for ever for any particular film or creative effort that Sales is involved with. I have to say, it was my grand pleasure to catch him a couple years ago at the at the Chicago's Literary Book Fair Festival, and he was not only promoting his film Amigo. He wrote a companion novel to this story as if it wasn't extensive enough called A Moment in the Sun, Hmm. which not only features the Philippines, but also about discovering gold in the Yukon and about uh, battleships exploding in a Cuban harbor. And then it spans through half a dozen other countries. (laughs) It's a gigantic novel, but it's given the same level of details in written form that he gave to so many of his films. And no studio financial limitations. Yes, <laughs> that's very true. It's uh, Paper is a relatively cheaper to acquire, <laughs> to, be, to be sure. But as for sales, if you guys couldn't listening couldn't tell, I'm a huge fan, and if I'd be happy to see his film, TV series, book, video game, or brand of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> well... This was so much fun to to go through this master of the independent film. And thanks, Jim, for your guest spots. Yeah, it was really cool to hear your thoughts on these films. And it would also be cool to hear what you guys listening and think about John Sayles, uh, your favorite films or favorite moments of his films, or how do you think we did in our exploration of his work to let us know what you think you can give us an email our way at directors club podcast at gmail.com the directors club is found in multiple places across the net from our itunes and spotify at directors club podcast to facebook at directors club podcast twitter at dc podcast and you can find our episodes online on our website of directorsclubpodcast.com Thank you guys so much for listening.
my problem is the repetitiveness. You know, women whine in white line fever over and over. Whereas progressive is existential. You got these chromatic melodies, right? To use for like a springboard into all kinds of experiments. Even the backbeat is full of nuances. You know that there's a central rhythmic idea going on, but you're never quite sure when it's going to pop up. Now, you, you, you put your, uh, your, your counterpoint on top of that, your passing tones, your arpeggios, your polyrhythms, your parallel scales, your focal harmonies, and it's uncertain, right? It's exploratory. It's like life. Right. Exactly. I mean, with country, it's like you're being told a story that you've heard before, but with progressive, it's like you're going into unknown territory. Exactly. Are you in music, too? Drugs. Oh. I get people off drugs. Oh, I... He specializes in rock stars. Probably isn't a major group in this country that doesn't owe its health and what's left of its gray matter to my man Jeff here. Mr. Cold Turkey, that's what they call him in the business. It's a tribute. It's a living. He's handled all the big ones. Did you know Jimi Hendrix? Poor Jimi. You win some, you lose some.